VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning into the program. It's Wednesday, October the 12th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's back in the producer's chair. He'll be the voice on the other end of the line when you give us a call to get in the queue and on the air to talk about whatever's on your mind. So, if you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial is 273-5211. Elsewhere, it's toll-free long distance, one 590 vocm which is 8626. Well, as you know, try to start the program with a bit of good news, and generally on the sporting front, I'm pretty sure we haven't started the program with a sporting note regarding bowling. Someone sent me a note yesterday, give me the heads up that it was just a couple of weeks ago, where a lady who bowls at a plaza bowl, her name is Katie Wells, she bowled a perfect game, 450. Now bowling is hard. I mean, I do enjoy it. It's a good bit of fun when you get a group together or go out as the family. But 450 seems a bit out of this world. Whenever I get into the 100s, I'm pretty thrilled with my performance. And another thing you'll note is when you don't bowl often. Now, this is 5-pin. I've only bowled 10-pin once. I've always got this lingering feeling that I'm going to leave my thumb behind in the hole. But so, Katie Wells, 450, boom. I don't know how common it is for anyone to be able to bowl the perfect game. And as I mentioned... If you don't do it very often, you really feel it the next day or the couple of days after. You're using a few muscles that you don't generally use, so a bit of bowling action to start the show today. Speaking of muscles, I didn't know this either, but someone sent the information along, that the City of St. John's is actually hosting the Masters World Powerlifting Championships. Runs from the 8th of this month to the 15th. There's representatives from 32 countries involved. We're reaching out to the meet director to talk about what's shaking at the Masters World Powerlifting Championships, which are in town right now. I don't know if you saw the video being shared wide and far on social media about members of the Colorado Avalanche getting their Stanley Cup rings uh, in a ceremony uh, the day before. The day before yesterday, I think it was. So the players are sitting at the table. It looks like a very swanky restaurant. And they give the countdown, three, two, one. They've got this beautiful box in front of them. And at the same time, they all flip the lid to find out that the box is illuminated. It has a video screen (laughs) inside under the lid displaying some of the celebration after they secured the Stanley Cup win. It was a pretty lavish ceremony, spare no expense. And, of course, the ring itself was right there on its little pedestal. Now, of course, this is all in reference to Alex Nook. So the rings are generally fairly gaudy. I think they're intended to be that way, and they're massive. You don't see many athletes wearing around their Stanley Cup or Super Bowl rings until there may be a broadcaster leading into the big championship games. So young Nook gets himself a Stanley Cup ring, which is simply extraordinary. And he's been given a big opportunity by the coaching staff in Colorado. He's going to start the regular season tonight as a second-line center. And when you're playing for the Avalanche, that means you play with some top guys and get some top minutes. So second-line center for young Alex Nahook tonight to kick it off against the lowly Chicago Blackhawks, a fire sale team, and, of course, Montreal, Toronto to get it going as well. And Dawson Mercer, New Jersey Devil Ford, of course, the Pride of Bay Roberts. He scored in the Devils' last preseason game. Oh, Abby Nahook had a couple of points over the weekend, off to a fine start. Anyway, here's the makeup of the league. It used to be absolutely dominated by Canadian-born hockey players. For the opening night rosters this year, Canada has 290 players, followed by the Americans at 206, and you would think the Russians may be third. No, it's the Swedes with 68, then the Russians, then the Finns, and then the Czechs and Swiss, and then all the way down the line. In terms of per capita representation in the bigs, 
We lead the league by a wide margin. Well, here it is. So in Canada, if we use three, uh, pardon me, 38 million players or people, that's 7.6 players per 1 million inhabitants. And then the states who come in sixth or second with 206, it's only 0.6 per capita Americans in the league, followed by the Swedes at 6.8. So they're right on our heels, as are the Finns. But there you go. That's the makeup of the opening night rosters. All right. What does this say? And, of course, the big news in the hockey world. To start with some good news and some anticipation for our couple of players in the bigs. The big news yesterday, and I think a lot of Canadians are following this story because hockey's part of the country. Even folks who are casual fans might tune into the Olympic Games or the World Juniors during the Christmas holidays or what have you. And the scandals plaguing Hockey Canada, in particular all instigated by the investigation into members of the 2018 Men's World or National Junior Team, and you all know the story, the slush funds and paying out money for victims of sexual assault. It f- unfortunately, it wasn't about morality or what's best for Hockey Canada, what's best for the sport, what's best for the country. It took for all the financial support that Hockey Canada was getting from the notables, Scotiabank, Tim Hortons. It looks like Bauer was the straw that broke the proverbial camel's back yesterday. They've all paused, tell us, throw them into the mix. They all paused or completely withdrew their support for C- Hockey Canada, certainly on the men's side. Continued support for women's hockey and para hockey. But because of all the pressures and comments coming from every corner and so many minor hockey associations provincially withdrawing their remittance of three bucks a player to Hockey Canada, finally the CEO stepped down yesterday. The entire board of directors has stepped down as well. It requires a full rebuild, but it's not just about new faces. It's going to have to be deeper than that. And, of course, the marquee event, World Juniors, that's going to happen this coming holiday season in between New Brunswick and Nova Scotia. It looks like the provinces and the cities are going to make sure the tournament uh, is pulled off. And I mean, Hockey Canada is in charge of everything from grassroots hockey right through amateur hockey, the Olympic team, the World Championships, the World Juniors. And this is just the beginning. This is just the beginning of trying to repair what is for. I, and I, I know that I'm maybe a little bit over the top with my support for hockey, but I think if you look at the numbers, Canadians do indeed feel and treat hockey like it's our own. And so Hockey Canada changing the faces. There will be an interim management board in place. They're going to have a formal run for board positions on December the 17th. No board members that just stepped down will be eligible to run. So if you want to take on that story, which is heartbreaking in many result, in many forms, but let's talk about it. And apropos of nothing, a song that you might hear sung at some NHL games, Three Blind Mice, first published today in history, 1609, by a London teenager named Thomas Ravencroft. And a couple other quickies here. So we know we just had the Telly 10. And the female champion, of course, Kate Baisley. And she's a marathoner as well. It was the day in history, three years ago, that Kenyan marathoner Ilud Kipchoge, famous name in the sport of marathon running, completed the first ever sub-two-hour marathon in history. It was long considered impossible. But I suppose it was also considered impossible to break the four-minute barrier for the mile until British med student Roger Bannister did it. But he ran the marathon in an hour, 59 minutes, and 40 seconds. <laughs> it's kind of mind-boggling to know that people are able to achieve those types of athletic achievements. And also in the world of, of automobiles. Born today, 1868, German engineer, auto pioneer August Horsch was born. He was working with Carl Benz. They had a big falling out. He went on to found uh, Audi. Cars started winning races all over the world, and of course... Audi is still a big major brand, and this one is an interesting one. Today, 42 years ago, 1979, 
The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. I mean, everybody had this book, right? The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Science fiction, funny. It was written by Douglas Adams. It was first published today in 79. International multimedia phenomenon. Translated into more than 30 languages. Of course, follow along the missteps and misadventures of the last surviving man, Arthur Dent. Right? Planet had been demolished, but the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. And now on to other issues of concern. All right. Yesterday, I think important questions being asked in the House of Assembly regarding the establishment of the future fund and the future fund legislation. So the plan here is stowing away money for a rainy day based on a couple of different revenue streams. You know, people have been clamoring for this for a long time. You, you know, we'll always hear the direct relationship with maybe the province of Alberta who went through their heritage fund pretty quick, but Norway and, of course, their billions in their sovereign fund. So the province is going to establish the future fund. Here's where there's maybe a bit of cart in front of the horse again. So we're anticipating a fall fiscal update soon. It might have been helpful to have that before we had the establishment of this legislation and to open up the future fund, which I don't know what the first contribution would be, 50, 100, 200 million dollars, I don't know. But here's where it gets, I think, a little bit concerning for some, is that it will come from royalties or revenues from non-renewables, so some one-time payments, but it also goes on to talk about future fund payments being made from the sale of government assets. What are they? I mean, this is an important question. We all know the work that the Premier's Economic Recovery Team did. We all know about the work that Rothschild and Co. did, and a lot of that about assessing the value and evaluating whether or not there was a big economic upside from selling one government asset or another. So we understand how the oil royalty works. And we get, an, you know, we get a number annually to talk about just how much money the oil industry did contribute to the provincial coffers. But when they go to talk about the sale of government assets, what does that mean? So there's going to be a six-person board of trustees to provide oversight, but they'll answer directly to the Department of Finance. It might have also been helpful if that six-person body answered to the House of Assembly, because then we'd be insured that every potential sale, whether it be a motor vehicle, the NLC, Bull Arm, Marble Mountain, would all be understood and debated on the floor of the House of Assembly, case by case, asset by asset. But that's maybe going to happen, maybe not. Now you know. And even the Privacy Commissioner, Michael Harvey, has uh, sided with the government in not releasing details regarding the Rothschild report for a variety of commercial sensitivity reasons and what have you. But we'll eventually know. They're going to have to go to the market and do the quote-unquote market sounding, or RFP, to see who might be interested in one entity or another. But the future fund, it all sounds good. But I don't blame opposition parties for asking the key questions regarding the sale of government assets as a contributing factor to the future fund. Sounds good. More to be understood. And if you want to take it on, there's a lot of angles inside that one. And then, of course, you know, I still think there's some concern or questions being asked about the creation of this nearly $200 million fund to send out a one-time payment of $500 to individuals, adults, 18-plus, who earned up to $100,000 a year. And then a sliding scale up to 125 where you'll get 250 bucks. There's a couple of things that I'd put out there. One, so it's tax-free. Okay, but what is the relationship between the province and the federal government to ensure that there's no federal taxes applied to that money? It's an important question. It might not be huge dollars. It might be, though, if it pushes you into the next tax bracket up. Now, that's going to happen in some corners, but that's one thing. I also 
wonder about how targeted it is because you have to have filed your taxes for 2021. And if you do that by the end of the year, you're going to be eligible for this money. But if we look around at just how many people are out there who are the most desperate, what's the likelihood, whether you be homeless, suffering with an addiction, a real low earner, if earning at all, and whether or not you've ever filed a tax return, let alone the one for 2021, so will we miss some of those folks who, if we're being honest with each other, they're the ones who really, really, truly need it. Now, of course, there's politics and motivation behind all of these decisions, and that's not a criticism. That's the realities of life. The middle class had been left out of a bunch of these supports, whether it be from the federal government and or the province. You know, a bump of 10% in the seniors' benefit or a bump of 10% in those receiving income support, good. But people who call or feel that they're in the middle class, they really haven't got any money. So whether it be a household that has two teachers, for instance, and they haven't been given a bump. So there is some politics m making sure that they spread the wealth, so to speak. But how could that have possibly been better spent? I'm just spitballing here for the purpose of conversation. Whether it be spending in full on mental health and addictions related matters and supports for. Whether it be spent on housing. Because we know we have a massive problem regarding housing and affordable housing in this neck of the woods in particular. But could there have been a more targeted approach? Because there's a lot of folks who are very likely, they're, they're thought to be in the 392,000 group who are going to get the money, but will they? You know, if you didn't file your taxes, you're not getting it. And I'm going to guess there's tens of thousands inside that 392 who have not filed their taxes. And in the world of housing. Yesterday, the third charter of Ukrainian uh, immigrants arrived at St. John's International Airport. There was 177 on board. And welcome. You know, the upside of immigration is well understood, at least for me and many Canadians. And of course, this is not just an immigration play. This is a humanitarian response. But we still have to be prepared. You know, if we have a housing problem here in the metro region on the northeast Avalon, which we do, how prepared are we to house the Ukrainian refugees? Now there's over a thousand of them. And it stands to reason that many of them will be so happy to have arrived in Canada and arrived in Newfoundland and Labrador and going to do their level best to learn the language and get to work and do what they have to do to support their family. Because remember, there's no federal support monies here for these Ukrainian uh, immigrants, refugees. So are we actually prepared? And we asked the minister directly, like there's some homestay programs and the Association for New Canadians doing what they can do. But it can't be the long-term play or plan to have them housed in a hotel. There's got to be some reference to even access to health care. So it's not unfair for people to ask these questions silently or aloud. Because the province has to make sure we're prepared to deal with whoever, long-term resident and or newcomer. So if you want to take that on, we can do it. But I do think it's important to remember that this is as much an immigration play as it is a humanitarian response to the atrocities in their home country. Okay, let's go. In the K-12 system, in some provinces, they are doing daily recording and reporting of absenteeism. You hear me talk about absenteeism all the time, whether it be chronic or otherwise. And some 10% of students inside the, somewhere in the neighborhood of 67,000 students in the province in the K-12 system are chronically absent. If you're chronically absent in grade 6, 75% of those young people don't graduate high school. And we know what that means. So... There are some parents who have been asking their child's school for absenteeism numbers, and the last one that we reported last week was on September 28th, where the absentee rate in 
bunch of the schools, the average out around 30%. That's the most recent update I've got again. So what does that mean? Also, I really need some parents to call about whether or not you were concerned with the very real learning loss that your child endured given all the fits and starts inside the K-12 system and whether or not the curriculum has actually been adjusted, as it has been in other parts of the country, to recognize that fact. I know we had a high school graduate symposium to ensure that we knew where the students were and how to ensure and to make sure that they got the attention they need, but it's only you can tell me, right? I don't have a child in the K-12 system any longer, but we need to hear from you. There's also a letter that's been distributed to the provincial and federal governments representing all the Atlantic provinces and a couple of the territories regarding teacher shortages. And that's very real. So maybe even it's time to touch base with the NLTA again to see exactly what uh, Mr. Langdon, Trent Langdon, the president of, his contribution to this particular letter, and we can take it on. All right, good morning to the folks on the southwest coast. Still lots of questions, still lots of cleanups, still lots of trauma being endured by the folks who have seen their lives turned upside down, and especially when we talk about just how many residents, let's just pick Portabasque, they still don't know, two weeks plus after Fiona, whether or not they're going to be ever able to move back into their home. We know the ones that are washed out to sea, they're gone. But how many other homes, whether it be for health reasons or structural reasons, whether or not they'll be uh, inhabitable in the future, and then the next steps on top of it, and then you look at the fact that, you know, whether it be doubling the Canadian Red Cross donation dollars and $30 million from the province to be there if you find yourself uninsured, which many will, especially when we talk about salt water damage and a sea surge. But then it's looking to the federal government and the Disaster Mitigation Adapt Adaptation Fund, dealing with the aftermath of natural disasters, storms and floods and fires, and talking about climate change and how we rebuild and build back and however people like to couch it. The fact of the matter is, the money that's been put into that fund, you know, so it's $2 billion in 2018 to last over 10 years. Topped up in 2021 with an additional $1.3 billion to be spread out over uh, 12 years. That fund is being depleted rapidly. They're going to have to go back in and top that up once again. They're nearing 50% of that fund being gone only halfway through what the intended 12-year span would be. So that is really quite something. And it doesn't matter what you think about climate change or the warming oceans or microplastics being found in breast milk for the first time or floods or fires or sea surges or hurricanes. fact of the matter is the insurance companies and the fossil fuel industry will tell you in no uncertain terms what's happening. And we've got to figure out how we deal with it and whether that be curriculum in school and or provincial and federal programs. But that's the update. They're going through that like it's nobody's business. Last one, I'll throw it out there again. While we are all wondering aloud about how to target relief package money, inflationary uh, support packages, and cost of living subsidies, and one-time checks, I guess when you put all that together, it becomes even more galling to know that the Auditor General, Denise Hanrahan, in a five-year snapshot at Nalcor, determined that they were bamboozling us. The overspend down parties on booze and tobacco and humidors and up and down the line, moving expenses being obliterated, Ugh. embedded contractors. The, the comments I'll make on that, and you're more than welcome to pick up wherever you like on that front. In 2007, with the constituency allowance overspending scandal, people were taken to task. They lost their political careers and some of them lost their freedom. This cannot be the end of the line. 
there is more to uncover and to understand about something we always thought was going on. But now, with this particular report, big questions being asked on our behalf by the Auditor General. What's next? It's fine to say there's been changes to the Energy Corporation Act for transparency and access to information. It's fine to say that Nalcor has been folded into Newfoundland Labrador Hydro. That doesn't mean these things didn't happen. There may indeed be good policies and programs and oversight in place to ensure it doesn't happen again. But if there isn't something next coming, then who's to say it's not going to repeat itself sometime in the future? We're on Twitter. We're VOCM OpenLine. Follow us there. Email address is openline at VOCM.com. When we come back, we're taking your calls on a topic of your choosing. Do not go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number one. Ron, you're on the air. Yes, Tiny. Good morning. They had a great preamble there. I got her wide open this morning. A lot of, a lot of good topics. Let's go. Uh, my question for you, I think I know the answer. My buddy dropped by here uh, last night, and he had recently, it's about the $500 thing, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, him and his wife had recently moved here from Nova Scotia. We're just gabbing about a few things. He said, geez, uh, are we going to get that $500? I said, I don't think so. <laughs> I said, you didn't file your taxes here last year, did you? He said, no, I filed in Nova Scotia. So do you know if people in that situation get the $500? I don't think so. No, I think there was a residency attachment to it, and I believe it was you had to be here for at least six months. And I'll double-check that, but there was a residency clause, yeah. It wasn't all of a sudden you you have a mailing address in St. John's, and now you'll get it, but you've just been here two weeks or something. No, they won't be eligible for it. But I'll, I'll yeah. find the particulars on residency. That's that's a good one to confirm, yeah. Yeah, he uh, he checked a few government places. Like, he, he's not too broke up either way, one way or the other, but he's just wondering about it, and he checked a few government sites and that, and he couldn't find out just manipulating around in there. So, like I said, it'd be a good one to get on the airways, just find out and... Yeah. yeah, I can figure that one out. That's that's no problem. But there was absolutely a residency issue. And yeah. I'm trying not to just say it's this because there's all sorts of residency issues associated with trying to attract healthcare workers back to the province who have an attachment to the province. So there's so many numbers yeah. floating around my mind. I want to make sure I get it right before I just yeah. get it out. Well, that's it for me this morning, Patty. Thanks. No problem. I'll get that Appreciate one going. No sweat. Bye-bye. All the, way, all the best. Bye-bye. Yeah, it just stands to reason that you had to have lived in the province for X amount of time before you qualify for a provincial load of money. Let's see if I can find that quick, because that is actually a very good question. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll get to it, but someone's asking the important question uh, based on, I guess, my comments off the top is, what's next with this Auditor General's report? That, to me, that's the question. Because I do understand and agree there have been some positive changes made at that Crown Corporation because they've changed the Energy Corporation Act. So we get access to more information. Not all, but more. They have indeed kind of done away with what we called Nalcor, and now it's just Newfoundland Labrador Hydro. It should be more streamlined. It should cost us less because so many people involved with Muskrat are no longer needed. Then you, re- you talk about the 500-plus embedded contractors and exactly what went on there. Who are they? How did they get the gig? How did they win the contract? Was there anything more to see than to the general uh, response to or an RFP and to ensure that you could be bondable and have the experience and the expertise and the track record? We don't know. We just don't know enough about it. I mean, even the decisions that were made at the onset to not make sure that instead of hiring all these uh, contractors, standalone subcontractors, if there was ever an opportunity to bring someone into the workforce as a full-time, or a, I guess a, in this case, a part-time employee of Nalcor, it would cost us less. There's no doubt about it. We wouldn't be paying the 
extraordinary are the humongous per diems and uh, fees coming from some of these consultants and subcontractors. But we do need to know, how did they get those contracts? And who are they? Because everybody gets the whole concept of nepotism as a hiring practice. And it's not just here, it is everywhere. But what role did some of that play? And if there were things that happened that were untoward, then a couple of things. If there was party expenses blown through, if there was moving expenses blown through, because there's a cap in place. For every single instance where that was the case, people have to pay back the money. Like, I don't know how that becomes complicated in, in anybody's mind. Whether it be the person who signed off on it or the person who claimed it and got the compensation, we want it back. And that's not asking a lot. There's a reason caps were put in place. If there can be arguments made about existential circumstances that need to be addressed by some minimal amount over, uh, over and above the cap, we can talk about that. But, you know, when we're moving somebody, and you see that one bill, where if the cap was 30 grand, we paid over 50 grand and all the toys and recreational vehicles and trailers and skidoos and quads, you know, we just have to be a little bit more responsible here. But that's what happens sometimes in the world and the role of governments and their crown, co their crown corporations or their agencies or boards. It's because it's not their money. It becomes very easy to sign off on things, as opposed to if someone walked into your office and you're the CEO of your own private sector company, responsible for profits, expenditures, human resources issues, and every single dollar that flows in and out, then I would imagine that many of the folks who signed off on these claims would have never done so. Why? Because they'd be answerable to somebody, whether it be the other members of their leadership, whether it be the board of directors that are in place, and having to answer questions on a case-by-case -case basis, an invoice-by-invoice -invoice basis, people would have never signed off on these things. So if you wouldn't have done it with your own money, don't do it with mine. That is not a complicated formula to apply. If you wouldn't do it with your own money, please do not do it with mine and our fellow listeners here on the show. Then other things where there might be more to see, how do we take that next step? What needs to be done here? It's not to say every contract inside the 500 uh, embedded contractors involves anything nefarious or any shenanigans or any fraud or any kickbacks. We don't know. But that's the problem, is that we just don't know. We do know that on the heels of the LeBlanc inquiry, there were some files based on what, on who, that were passed over to law enforcement. That apparently happened. What the status of those is, I don't know. But we should know. Let's see here. We're on the Twitter box. We're VOCM Open Line. You can follow us there. Our email address is openlineofvocm.com. When we come back, the topic, well, that's up to you. Don't go away. Weekdays on VOCM, it's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. Welcome back to the show. Uh, let's go. Line number three. Charlie, you're on the air. Yes, good morning, Patty. Morning to you. Patty, uh, I'd like to make reference this morning to... Uh, Tom often comes on and talks about the uh, pursuit of uh, of more with from from unions and so on. And uh, I think I think he has a point. Uh, there was a study done uh, by uh, two people uh, not that long ago, uh, Tim Casa and Richard Ryan. They compared the, those people whose primary aspirations were making money; they were oriented toward that. And those people who were more service-oriented and uh, more giving, I guess, to, to others. And the conclusion of the study was that uh, those who were primarily interested in accumulating money uh, 
this was associated with uh, a less self-actualization, is the way he put it, low vitality, more depression, more anxiety, as opposed to those who uh, felt that their mission in life was to uh, make this place a better place, right? And I think with you've had many people talk about mental health and drug use and so on, and I really believe that, uh, I'm not the first to say this, I really believe that uh, this pursuit we have, uh, in, especially in, in, in the Western world, of accumulating more and thinking that getting more is going to satisfy that, that inner longing that we have, uh, I think that's very often where we've gone wrong, why we turn to drugs and why there's so much suicide and depression. Do you want to comment on that? Well, I, I think if you're looking at, uh, I'll just make my way up to 100,000 feet above sea level here for a second. So if we're trying to find out the contributing factors to strife and woe and division and grief and money and the rest, or I should have left money out of there. So I think it, generally speaking, because it's hard to you know encapsulate everything into a general thought, but finance, money, economics is behind a lot of it. It just is. Political divisiveness, uh, t family turmoil, arguments with your wife or your husband or your partner or your spouse, the turning to self-medication with drugs or alcohol. I think we can map a lot of this back to money. I really do. And so if, if you want to make that even more complicated and more frustrating, it's the ever-growing gap between those who have it and those who don't. It used to be there was a recognizable gap, and we could kind of justify it with understanding what it means to be an executive at a uh, Fortune 500 company versus someone who's working an entry-level job. But now, the gap between someone making $100,000 and the folks who are breaking in the money hand over fist, the uber 1% wealthy, that gap is growing quicker than it ever has in human history. That leads to even more frustration based on money. Well, I'd like to give three examples. I think what you said is uh, is spot on. I was reading a, a Mike Tyson's biography a while back, and when he was training up in the Catskills, when he was starting to become a young boxer with Costamato, he came back to his neighborhood where they used to, he admitted, they used to rob and steal. And he went to some of his old gang, and uh, they said, Mike, we'd rather uh, you... Uh, you went on and pursued your uh, what 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 you're doing. I, 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 we really don't want to be involved with you in, in, in what we do. And uh, Mike looked at them like they had ten heads at the time because uh, he was thinking that was that was uh, they used to have the good life, right? And of course, what what his friends were saying to him uh, or engaged in that kind of activity, this is an empty life. Uh, you've got a chance. Get the hell out of here, you know. And another example, Mother Teresa visited. Uh, United States some time back, and uh, she made the comment, a famous comment, I guess. She said, this is the poorest nation I've ever visited. And, of course, she didn't mean material wealth. She meant uh, uh, the opposite, poor in spirit. And the last example, uh, there's a lady uh, professor giving a course, I believe it's a Harvard, I'm not sure, on the pursuit of, uh, of happiness and uh, what... Uh, a good life means. That course, uh, the last I read, people were, she was overwhelmed with people trying to get in to, to, to take that. It received such a reputation and people that took it uh, got so much from it. 
which leads me to to think that uh, there's there's a a longing out there for uh, this kind of uh, thinking and education because in this consumer related society you drive around Newfoundland and and you and you see uh, the the boat and the skidoo and the two cars and you know you sometimes want to you see people even going going back to work right uh, who don't need the money but uh, they're 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 um, they're feeling alienated. They're feeling a, a, a loneliness inside, and they don't know what the hell is going on. Yeah, I yeah. think there's a difference between being bored and going back to work versus needing to go to back to work so you can pay the bills. We throw around numbers like they're really easy to understand, when in fact, even for me, they are not. When I was young, I know there was, there's always been billionaires. When I was young, someone who was a millionaire had a lot of money. And now all of a sudden, you look at the number of billionaires, and especially the number of new billionaires that have been created through the pandemic, we've got ourselves an issue that we should be talking about. And it's not just about eat the rich, but it is about fairness and equity and all the rest of it. For context, a million seconds is just short of 12 days. Mm-hmm. A billion seconds is 32 years. Now, there's a long way between 12 days and 32 years. That's just how much money a billion dollars is. And this is the one that I love more than anything else. Because I don't know how many billionaire, billionaires there are, but there's, thou- or there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds. And some of them have so many billions, they'll ne- the planet will be gone before they can spend it all. If on the day Christopher Columbus landed in 1492, and not with compound interest, nothing. If you got paid $5,000 a day, which is a lot of money. If you're making five grand a day, you're doing very, very well. If you got paid $5,000 a day every single day since Columbus landed in 1492, you do not have a billion dollars. I mean, that is remarkable to think and to say it out loud. And there's people on the face of the earth with hundreds of billions of dollars. There's corporations that are worth hundreds of billions of dollars. Are we really seeing the money being spread about? And I'm not just about, you know, let's eat the rich and tax the rich and screw every corporation, then no one should be able to have X amount of money. But there's something patently wrong there. I mean, I'm 53 years old. When I was a young man, millions of dollars were tons of money. And now we're talking about so many billions. And I just gave you context for the difference between a million and a billion. And just imagine, that's where we are. That's why I think your summary point of money being the root of all evil, not to use a cliche, but generally speaking, the cliches are true. For this one, it's spot on. Well, uh, what was it Christ said? You can't worship mammon and God too. And mammon, he meant money. On, on, on this topic, before I go to quickly to something else, I think that uh, a goal in life would be something bigger than ourselves. If, if ourselves is the biggest goal we have to, to enrich and so on, as opposed to trying to make this place a little kinder and better. I think if you get trapped in that, like lottery winners, you, you know what's happened to uh, many of those who finally got it all. They, uh, they completely ruined their lives. But anyway, a goal of uh, probably trying to make this place a little better and leaving that is, uh, seems to me a little more healthy from, from, from all the studies and observations I've made. Anyway, Like everything, Charlie, it depends on your motivation. I think regardless of who you are, who you vote for, your status in this world, I think, and I just, you know, as a parent, one of the things, again, in the world of cliches, is you hope to leave the place better than you found it for your children and your grandchildren, whether that be with their lot in life, with a house, uh, a home over their head, an opportunity to go to university or whatever, or the planet. That's something that I think we all share as a consensus belief and hope. That can be applied to so many different walks of life. So if we use that to apply to everything that we think about and touch and feel and work on or work with, that can all happen. But we've just got ourselves in a place where whether it be, you know, cheering against the Joneses, whether it be 
trying to keep up with the Joneses, whether it be because you're a liberal amatory, you're an NDP, or you're a communist, and all of a sudden we can't agree on leaving the place better than we found it. We've just, maybe it's echo chamber nonsense, but we've just got ourselves uh, in a world, like we're a bunch of whirling dervishes, like spin tops. When if we all shared that common belief that we just want to feel good, be healthy, be able to fu- uh, treat our families properly, to be able to pay the bills, to put uh, good food in their belly, well, some of those common threads, we don't pull on those enough. We pull, look for the ones that make us different, and we just yank those until the end of the earth. And look, we're paying the price for it. That's right. Well, I think that lady who's doing that course, is, she's demonstrated that uh, we, we need to do more with young people to, to help them get on the right track, because when they look at society, uh, most of them feel if they get a good job with uh, good money, that's the end of it. That's the goal, right? But anyway... Uh, Patty, uh, I, I don't know if you caught uh, Fifth Estate there last week when they were talking about uh, 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 burning and uh, wood pellets? No, I did not. Uh, the story was, was about uh, shipping uh, B.C. wood pellets to Britain for their energy needs. Uh, this company, Drax, I think the name of them, they were burning these over there uh, to, to provide electricity. I read the story, yeah. Yeah, and... Uh, They were claiming it was all from slash and uh, uh, roots and tree limbs that were, and of course a lot of it, when the truth came out, they were were actually in uh, taking out primary forests in in this pristine wilderness. When when they showed a satellite view of what was being cut down, it it was just uh, out of this world. It was like a moonscape. And, And anyway, they were sending it over to Britain, and the British government... Uh, was claiming that this was uh, green energy, uh, this was meeting their, their targets according to the Paris Accord, and they're actually subsidizing this so-called green energy. And, of course, a lot of Britons over there who uh, knew the difference were, were up in arms about it and calling on British Columbia to, uh, to look, stop using your forest, stop sending us that. Shipping, can you imagine shipping that a- a- across the, the oceans as well? The whole thing was so insane... I thought, here's an example of, of what we're doing in this d- d- day and age that I wonder sometimes if we do have a chance to turn things around. But anyway, The story started months ago when there were some snapshots taken of trucks, logging trucks carrying the big, massive, old-growth forest. Not pulp, not, not roots, not windfall or fire, fo- fire load. Big, old-growth forest. And the, the province was quick to say, oh, no, 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 no. This is not going where people think it's going. So month after month after month, people worked on it, and you're absolutely right. It's being shipped overseas, turned into a wood pellet, and shipped somewhere else. That is not green. That's just not how green works. Now, there's nothing perfectly green. You know, there's things that are greener, but that story is infuriating. And, you know, same thing being done in the rainforest. You know? Exactly, <laughs> we're, exactly. We're just kidding ourselves here sometimes. Uh, Charlie, I'm late for the break, but appreciate the time. Okay, sir. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Uh, oh, I wish I had Because Charlie asked me in an email not long ago for me to elaborate on the difference. When I say we don't have a revenue problem, we have a distribution problem, I wish we had to get into that. But anyway, next time. Let's take a break. When we come back, we're talking road work, housing issues, and then whatever you want to talk about, don't go away. Welcome back. Let's go. Line number one, Sam, you're on the air. Yes, good morning, Paddy. Paddy, I was talking to you about uh, oh, probably a month ago about the potholes uh, down here on Route 235. And I got to say, it was, uh, sound really good this morning when uh, they announced that there was going to be uh, somebody here in the area within the week 
to fill up some of those holes. Well, it took a long time for everybody calling the government and everything about this for to try to get the potholes filled up. And I'm hoping when they're uh, doing the Road 235, there's uh, another little route there from... Uh, uh, comes out open hall, Redcliffe and Tickle Cove, and there's potholes in uh, coming out that way. I'm hoping they're going to come out there and fill them in too, because I'm sure it's some of them that you can put a, a smart car down in on. You know, that's how bad the pavement is gone there, with the holes are just getting bigger and bigger. Sam, two thirty-five. Is that the Bonavista Peninsula? Yes. Okay. Yeah, yeah it's from Plate Cove down to Bonavista that way, right? No, if you're coming down through. Yeah, so, and, you know, uh, usually, now, I've got to be careful here, sometimes when government finally gets the equipment in the area, you know, not if we're just doing coal patch out of the back of a truck, then that's, you know, as everyone understands, that is the very epitome of a Band-Aid. But once they get equipment in the area to do some real road work, not full-on scratch and patch or full-on brand-new blacktop uh, right across from shoulder to shoulder, but usually they'll try to cover as much territory as they can before they you know, move off to their next screaming bunch of citizens in one route or another in the province. But I'm glad they're going to give your road some, atten- some attention. Oh, it's long. This is long overdue. I mean, the amount of people that's after beating their uh, cars up to the summer is unreal. Well, Patty, well, when we came uh, down towards Open Hall there uh, the other day or last week there, and somebody, I don't know if they did it for a laugh or what, poured about two gallons of Patrick berries down in the in one of the potholes and basically basically saying the smoother ride with Patrick berries in the in the potholes right that was uh, it was just laughable when you see it right when you drive along but hopefully that they are going to come out and do the rest of the roads and you know fill up the potholes you know, because it's it's now the winter is coming on is going to be worse and worse. So I'm hoping that they'll uh, come right out through the communities and uh, fill up the holes out there too. Yeah, I sure hope so. Uh, I Every now and then, well, I should say, every single day someone sends me pictures from wherever they live with describing right. the same type of smart car-sized potholes. And, of course, they don't shrink. They only get bigger. So, And then, you know, you got people like the, uh, oh, the pothole man. What's his name again? Uh, I can't remember. He goes around with the spray paint and spray paints around oh, the potholes yeah. in yeah, an effort to shame the government. Too. Yeah, it's down on the uh, Bjorn Peninsula, I think. Yeah, well, down here on the Bonaventure Peninsula, too, it's the same way that they're uh, spraying the potholes. And uh, some of them are uh, almost a, a lane and a half on the road. They're that big when you come along by them. Amazing stuff. Uh, well, I'm glad you're getting some attention. So the sweet sound of road work being done is what you've been asking for, and hopefully they attend to as many of the holes and the bad spots as they can before they pack up and move on to the next set of potholes. Yeah, I sure hope so, Petty. So thanks a million for having your, your show. It was a great show, and it's a good way for to get the, get the attention of the roads and everything, you know, when you're getting on the open lines and more people get on. Um seems like that's when you'll start getting a, a bit of work done. I guess the squeaky, squeaky wheel uh, gets the grease. No, that that so will always be true. Out. Thanks yeah. for this, Sam. All right. Thanks, Patty. Take care of yourself. Bye. All right. Bye-bye. Uh, let's keep going. Let's go to line number four. John, you're on the air. Patty Daly, good uh, Good morning to you. Morning to you. I, uh, I got a bone to pick. Fire away. 
I got a bone to pick with uh, you townies. Okay. Okay. I thought you'd come back with me on that there, Patty. Well, I, I have an opinion that uh, a lot of the townies, a lot of people in St. John's Metro uh, are taking a lot of jobs away from the rural folk in uh, Newfoundland and Labrador. And I could uh, pack that up with some, uh, you know, uh, um, some facts, but uh, I'd like to go on to uh, my <clears throat> my kind of... Uh, uh, but hold on a second. Townies are taking rural jobs? Yes. Yes, they are. And what's the example of that? Oh, gravity-based structure in Argentia, Newfoundland. That's in Placentia region. But uh, I don't really want to focus on uh, Argentia right now. I would rather focus more along the lines of Stephenville and Corner Brook area and the West Coast. Okay. Well, we could come back, actually, you know, as a topic of uh, the gravity-based structure in Argentia. Yes, you need high-skilled, highly-skilled technical engineers, field experts, uh, construction trades, and whatnot. But our locals giving ample opportunity uh, for these projects, and me as a former local in Argentia and Placentia, Newfoundland, which is in the regional boundaries, uh, Argentia is uh, the regional boundary of Placentia, uh, uh, St. Mary's, and Placentia for a regional hiring. Um, all these St. John's crowds seem to be coming in and taking the work. Uh, I can give you a fact of that, is, uh, especially, uh, you know, the Laborers Union, Luna, Local 1208, you know, uh, uh, that's that's one I will uh, identify as a as a bit of a bit of an issue in my opinion, but uh, um, they do fight for local hiring, and then there is management <clears throat> that uh, gets involved, of course, because they're managing the project, uh, and they're all based in St. John. Um, you know, there's no manager that I know of from Placentia. <clears throat> uh, they're from different areas of the province, um, highly skilled specialists. Most of them will come in, engineers and and uh, have to accommodate, pay them living out allowances from uh, Quebec and Montreal to come into St. John's, like SNC-Lavalin, and uh, house them and then pay them, you know, for government accommodations and whatnot. You know, meanwhile, locals, do they have accurate representation, Patty? Well, I, I mean, I don't know. There's, you know, same thing would happen when we're talking about the Flores Bar Mine and the higher St. Lawrence residents first. This is always going to be part of the conversation. And some of the big mega projects, the benefits package will carefully outline the hiring hierarchy. But let me just throw this uh, in for the sake of conversation. Yep. How many people do you think work in St. John's that live outside of St. John's? Um, well, more than More than any example you could give me. I don't. I don't think there's many, <laughs> unless they're within driving distance, Patty. Because that's what they're doing when they come into Placentia. Yeah. They all hop on a bus and they come into Placentia and take the jobs from the locals. Placentia. Placentia is driving Patty? distance to St. John's. I got a question. I got a question, Patty. Sure. Uh, for you townies, what's a what's a journeyman laborer? What's a journeyman laborer? Like I've heard of a skilled trade where you got a journeyman. Uh, uh, you know, a journeyman carpenter, you got a journeyman ironwork, you got a journeyman, you know, they do an apprenticeship. What's a journeyman labor? What's the apprenticeship in uh, Luna in, in Newfoundland? I think it's more, uh, you know, who's the niece or nephew of somebody of somebody else who's in management, you know? That's the way I see it. And from my experience and being a former member, uh, that's that's what a, a journeyman uh, laborer is. 
And it's definitely not a local anymore because there was no local hiring clause, Patty, in Placentia. In Argentia, there's a $2 billion project that's been ongoing since 2013. It's now amalgamated by a, a coalition, uh, SDP, SNC, Lavalin, Dragados, Pentagon, all these bigwig internationals and these uh, St. John's conglomerate of specialists, journeyman laborers, come into the town and take all the work. Meanwhile, there's businesses shuttering, Patty. There's people leaving. I have a house that's up for sale, Patty, and we didn't even get salespeople to come in. I have to go find another real estate person to come in and, and, and find better better, uh, better uh, MLS listings to get out of the place because I'm staring at a $2 billion project, and I can't get a job. So that's why I'm in Ontario right now working. But anyways, I sound angry. I am. I want this as a topic of conversation. I'm more concerned right now, Patty. Forget Argentia. It's already done. It's it's building. It's ongoing. I'm more worried about the contracts coming into Stephenville on the west coast of the island. That's where I want to see representation. The western people, the western locals, I don't want to see people from St. John's getting a little, living out allowance to come in on a government-led project sponsored in Stephenville and then getting living out allowance when you got locals who are, who are having to move and leave when you should have accurate representation, local hiring clauses, and this is what needs to happen, Patty, on the West Coast. There should be a local branch. Luna should have a Cornerbrook office where you can come in and talk to a business representation, not just send an email to St. John's office. You should have to go and walk in and say, hey, can I talk to a business representative? I would like a job. I'm from Stephenville. And uh, no, that if it wasn't people talking and bringing this up, it won't happen. Because you know why? There's too many greedy palms there in Townyland at St. John's. That Vic yeah, Slaney, he's that? the retire. He's the head of the place. Yeah, well, that's an interesting perspective. Uh, what I, I'll add to it, and people can, you know, bloody townies all you like. That doesn't fizz me. Uh, but half of the city, I'm going to guess, around half, are people that came to St. John's from elsewhere in the province, maybe to go to school or maybe to get a job, and they stayed here. So, I mean, we talk about the number of communities in and around St. John's and the folks who are living, whether it be up the shore or out in CBS or wherever, that their job is in St. John's. And, uh, yeah, I, I just think that, you know, the whole Townie Bayman divide, some of that is, you know, some of it's real, some of it's made up. But there's all kinds of people working in this city, the inside the city boundaries of the capital of town of the town that don't live in the town. Uh, but anyway, you know, I mean, hiring priorities and making sure locals have ample opportunity to be hired. I'm not going to argue that one, but it's an interesting tact that it's uh, the bloody townies that are ruining everything. Because I think if we look at the reality of employment, that there's a bunch of people that uh, work and use town amenities that don't live here. And that's fine by me because that's the nature of the mobile workforce. Right. So anyway, last word to you before I go. I apologize to you, Patty. Don't you don't owe me an apology. I don't you're care, John. That's fine. You're one of the good That's debatable, too. That's my opinion. That's my opinion. And that's okay. fine. I'm not taking offense to it. I'm not offended at all. Uh, look, fair enough. You know, the way we hire people so that we can have economies of scale where people live is an important conversation. So whether it be Florespar or Argentia or the 
pending wind project in Stephenville or the mining sector in Labrador or Muskrat Falls or whatever else, that's part of the conversation. I'm not offended. Some might be, but that doesn't include me. Uh, we're late for the news, but I appreciate the time, John. I wish you well in Ontario, and hopefully you can make your way back soon. I hope so. So in okay. that case, I will summarize. Good. I will be back. Good. I will be back to talk with you, Patty, on accurate representation on the West Coast for Stephen Will. Oh, I heard that part. I want to see local hires. We local wish you well, hires. Mr. Schwarzenegger. Thank you. All the best. Bye-bye. Bye. Uh, let's take a break. Don't go away. Join us for On Target, one hour in which Linda Swain examines topics that mean the most to you. On Target, weekday afternoons at 1 on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Caller, you're on the air. Hi there. How are you doing today? I'm doing okay this morning. Thanks. How about you? I'm doing well. I'm just calling in today to share a concern with the general public, something I never thought I would experience in my young lifetime. Um, something the other day that happened brought an extreme awareness to my attention of how many people in our society may have faced this. And it's certainly a call to the public to inquire about why this type of incident would have happened. Um, without giving too much detail, a couple of nights ago, there was an attempted break and enter at an address that I was at. Uh, there was children in the address, and we had phoned the police. We actually called 911. Um, there was absolutely no response from police at all uh, for more than a 24-hour period of time. We actually had to call back and remind them that uh, someone kicked our back door in and uh, was very scary, very uh, violent-seeming. Um, I'm very lucky that I was only a few minutes away from the address when this happened because I wasn't actually there when the door was kicked. Uh, however, I was the first call and I got there very quickly. And I'm glad that the, uh, the person called me as we did phone 911 as a response uh, to seeing the, the state of the door. And uh, there was no response whatsoever. So I, I really just wanted to share this with the general public that uh, at any moment, it could be it could be a circumstance that you're in, uh, and I, I didn't really know what kind of person I was before that date, but I certainly know now. Uh, you know, I stood stood my guard and and recognized that uh, when I call nine one one, I hope I really hope that someone shows up next time. Like you would, I mean, that's what it's there for, isn't it? So yeah. I, I I don't know exactly what to say, but to me, it's akin to when people call 911 for a first responder as a paramedic and can't get one because they're either tied up or they're offloading at the health sciences or St. Clair's or wherever, or they're on a long road trip because there's no uh, current local ambulance where they live. And I think police resources are in a very similar circumstance. They're stretched thin. So I don't yeah, think it's yeah. a matter of callousness and just ignoring, pardon me, the uh, dispatcher or the RNC ignoring you. I don't even know if there's enough cars on the road to respond to all the calls they're getting. It's a pretty difficult circumstance to try to manage, I think. It certainly is, and it's, it's something that I'd say a lot of us can appreciate given our budgets and the current world we live in and the economic structure of things. Uh, it's just that I, as a young person, I never thought that I would be the one to take the situation into my own hands. Um, I have zero training. I have no weapons. I have no authorization, no authority. Uh, and even at the time, we had no camera, you know, and, and I think at that point, given that I just realized the state that our society is in and, you know, the fact that it's it's almost a chance now if we call the police, I feel, 
uh, we've certainly gotten the camera. We've taken the extra preventative measures. And I, I hope that anyone listening today uh, may take that as a heat of advice, that uh, the, the services that we relied on as younger adults and as children may not be there as we remember them being now. I struggle with how to talk about uh, crime because I, I always try to make sure that I'm not using it as a sensational tool because you know the old newspaper adage, if it bleeds, it leads. And crime does get clicks. Crime does pique people's interest. But it's just it's always difficult to try to deal with the realities of crime versus the perception of crime. But when, in the recent past, just in my neck of the woods here in town, there was a circumstance where we had two serious home invasions where people were injured. One guy got stabbed. Then the next thing you know, we're being told by the RNC, we should lock our door. If you're not expecting a visitor, don't open the door. All these types of things. And then days later, we've got a shooter on the loose in CBS. And when we hear and see those stories, we have to talk about them. But I always try to be careful. It's not make that the, you know, everyone should be afraid, cower under your bed, lock your door, hide away when we just need to be pragmatic and to realize what's happening. And then consequently, what we don't do enough of is talk about why we're seeing as much as we're seeing. And if we can boil it back to, if you listen to lawyers and judges and cops and sheriffs, the numbers of people going through the turnstiles at the provincial courts dealing with a mental health issue or an addictions issue is somewhere in the neighborhood of 70%. 70%. Same can be said for the numbers of people incarcerated, for instance, at HNP. Now, this is not giving anyone a pass. It's the furthest thing from... But if we're talking public safety and for the police to be able to better manage their job to serve and protect, we've got to also talk about why people are committing the types of crimes they're committing, not only using it as a headline grabber to say it's dangerous out there, be careful and be afraid. Yes, I agree entirely. And that's uh, that's why I, I mentioned I'd love to create somewhat of a public awareness that, you know, there's there's something we should be able to do as a society to start to look into whether it's you know the funding, whether it's how we can help our communities. Uh, as an example, when I was young, we had these signs around our neighborhoods called the Neighborhood Watch. And it was essentially just a group of people in the neighborhood who agreed to keep an eye on things, uh, make sure things were civil, you know, everything was working how it should in the neighborhoods. And uh, that would be a great, great idea to resurface if it's not already abundant in our communities. It's out there. I think some people might be loathe to be as active in a neighborhood watch as they once were. Maybe it's fear of repercussion. Maybe it's understanding that we're seeing more and more crimes being committed by someone who's got brandishing a knife or a gun. These types of things have made it different for people to even want to be part of looking out for their neighbors. Absolutely. But you're right. There's neighborhood watch and we have some what some might refer to as nosy neighbors in our neighborhood, but they're doing great work. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I'm not a huge fan of the nosy neighbors, but uh, they're effective, they're efficient. And when, you know, when danger occurs or happens, it's, uh, it's better to have the community to help rather than just a person or, you know, the person who's the victim and the, the person who has done it. So I really appreciate coming on here today and expressing that awareness. And again, I fully support our society and, you know, the police and the, the paramedic first responding. Uh, I certainly hope that through the next couple of years of mapping out our finances, our province can really pick things up again. Appreciate the time. Be well. Thank you. Take good care. Bye-bye. Yeah, I mean, it is tricky to report on crime. Just one second. I got it. Water went on the wrong way. Oh, my. Can't even drink. Let's take a break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number six. Kevin, you're on the air. 
Yes, good morning, Patty. Morning to you. Patty, uh, I've been listening to your show now for the last few mornings there, driving back and forth from Port of Ass to uh, uh, Wild Cold Corner, Brooklyn, up to Fiona garbage here. Uh, so, I, you know, I appreciate what you're doing on the line there. Uh, you know, like you're always helping people. I'm calling in this morning just, uh, you know, what a story for a lady. Uh, she don't know I'm doing this, but uh, she... A few years ago, I, I listened to yesterday on the show there, you said that or one guy said he was getting $91.50 every two weeks from uh, social services. And then I listened to Jerry Byrne, you know, like uh, patting himself on the back and everything for what he's doing there, which, uh, you know, I got no problem with that. That's good. Uh, but what I'm calling in for about, uh, I'd say about four years ago, four or five years ago there, I, I purchased some land in the town that I live in there. Uh, to do a development. Now, I've been a businessman for 31 years myself, and uh, I'm, I'm kind of retired now, but just doing work on the side. But anyway, I uh, uh, was doing another development, so I purchased a piece of land, and on that land, there was a old vacant uh, house, and uh, this guy came and approached me, Kevin, would you uh, you know rent this home to me? I said, uh, no, I'm going to tear that down. That's, that's dilapidated. It's going to go to the garbage. Anyway, he, uh, he uh, kept coming back. He was persistent, wanted to rent it, wanted to rent it. And I said, Larry, that thing, I said, the water's probably froze up. The pipes are bust. You know, I said, nobody lived in it for the last year. Anyway, taking pity on him, I guess, you know, I said, well, okay, Larry, you can uh, take it and I'll, I'll give it to you. You know, And he said, I'll give you $500 a month for it. So I said, okay, good enough, no problem. So anyway, Patty, I let him move in. He done the repairs, fixed the pipes, you know, and did whatever. And I told him, I said, now, Larry, anything happens to that home, I said, you know, while you're in it, I said, the first call I get, some come with the excavator because I didn't buy it, this property for that purpose, you know. I said, this home, that chair is in the way, it's got to go. But in the meantime, if you're looking for a place to live, well, you can stay there, okay? Anyway, Patty, make a long story short, I let him move in. He moved into the place, and in a matter of about probably six months, uh, you know, the poor man, he got cancer, and then he had a heart attack, and uh, he eventually died. So that left uh, his wife and uh, his two children in this old home. Uh, you know, to me, he shouldn't even be lived in. But anyway, uh, she was left there, and, you know, when she left, I mean, they were faithful with their payments and all this stuff, right? Their monthly rent and that. But after he left, I could see, you know, that she was struggling to pay the rent. And then she get one month, two months, next thing, four months behind. And I didn't pressure her or anything. So anyway, Patty, I let her stay there. And uh, she's still there. And uh, so after that, within six months, you know, she I could see she was getting money from her mother and her father to help to pay, you know, the rent and everything, struggling. Her father took sick. Her father passed away. Three months later, her mother took sick. Her mother passed away. So now she's back to square one. Now she got no help whatsoever. I mean, when you lose your parents, say. So anyway, she uh, uh, started falling behind again, and, you know, she's behind three months, whatever. So I goes down to see her and that, you know, and ask her what problem was, and she's struggling. So now, are you still there, Patty? Just listening, sir. Yeah. So now she's uh, she's uh, in a home all alone. She got a 19-year-old boy. She's uh, and he's got ADHD. There was no help to her whatsoever. Her mother uh, 
and father passed away. They didn't have anywhere. She, they had a cat and a dog, and she ended up taking the cat and dog with the the two dogs and the cat she already had. So now she's in there with five uh, animals, her 19-year-old son with ADHD, and she's. I've asked her, I said, well, you know, can't you go to the social services or get help or whatever? She said, they won't help me. They won't do anything for me. I said, why not? They help everybody else. And she said, but I get, uh, you know, a little bit of kind of pension from her ex-husband or from her husband that had passed on. And uh, she's really in a hard bind. And uh, she's living in this house there. And so Friday evening, I goes home. And there she is, you know, her five animals and her son with ADHD, 19 years old. And I said to her, I said, oh, so how was the situation? She said, just look at it. Friday evening, she said, I, I got 400 and something dollars, Kevin. She said, but I couldn't pay it on the rent. I had to pay it on my utility, on my, my, my bills. I said, no problem. You did the right thing, you know, to do that. But, yeah, but she said, I gave them the $400. But right now, she said, I'm, uh, I have no lights. They just come and cut my power. So, I mean, Pat, the whole house, the house is like 80 to 100 years old. I'm not going to put anything into it. You know, I mean, I'm ready to do a development there. I've done four subdivisions in Deer Lake here as it is. Now I'm ready to do this one in Mini Home Park. And she's living there, but that house is in the way. It's got a goal. Uh, what I'm calling you for is I'm putting out a plea to you for someone to help this lady. She's in there now, and I got my missus yesterday. I said, well, where's she living? I've been coming out of work like the last few days here from the garbage collection or whatever we're doing here. And, and uh, I circle around that house in the evening, and when I go in, it's dark, totally dark. So I said to my missus, I said, Gail, go find out where she's living. And she found out that she's going to bed in the cold. She's wrapped up in the blankets. She said, I'm wrapping up in the blankets, her and her son. They have no lights, can't even get a cup of tea. Uh, someone needs to help this lady. I mean, you know, she, 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 she's in desperate need there. I don't care if it's the Salvation Army, Social Services, uh, who it is. I mean, and I don't care. Like, she's there. Don't matter to me if I get the rent. She's behind. Well, big deal. That don't matter. It's a person that's really hurting. And then she said, well, Kevin Friday, she said, I'm going to go and see if I can get a, a loan to pay you and pay my utilities. Now, I don't know her personal bills or nothing like that. I know nothing about her. She's a 50-year-old lady, and uh, she desperately needs help. So I don't know if someone you can put on, you know, put someone on to her. I mean, I get to see Jerry Byrne and him there on, on, on the news here this morning, you know, uh, talking about what they're doing for, uh, you know, the Ukrainians, the immigrants, the you know, the outside country workers, whatever comes in. And I got no problem with that, Patty. I saw, I, God bless them. If, if we can help them, let's do it. But we don't do it at the expense of our own people. Someone should look after this lady. Someone should go and help her. I mean, she, she desperately needs help, and she can't find anywhere to, okay. to live. So, Where exactly I, is she? She's in her home now. I, I, but no, where where not, is the home? Though? Is it in Cornerbrook or is it in... Oh, it's in Deer Lake. Okay, Deer it's Deer in Lake. Deer Lake. That's just one part of the puzzle I was missing. So yes. she's in Deer Lake. And okay, so if I can get someone to connect with her, will I go through you, for instance? Uh, you can go through her, but you know you might not get. Now I've been trying to contact her. She don't. Her phone goes right to uh, the answering machine, right? You know, so uh, but you can text her. 
you can go through me. I'll get you our phone number or get Dave our phone number. There. Okay, I'm going to put you on hold, Kevin. You give Dave the number, and we'll see what kind of supports we can try to drum up for her. And, Pat, she's in there now with, with the power turned off, you know, uh, and no heat, no nothing. And her and her son and those five animals, you know, I mean, she desperately needs help. I mean, it's a whole house. I, I, I'm just going to tear it down and, and do my develop, do my development. So, uh, you know, I'd like for you guys to reach out to her if you could. If we can get any help for her, we will like we always do. Kevin, I'm going to put you on hold. Speak with Dave. Give him the number that we're talking about, and we'll see what we can do. I will, sir. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Dave, he's on hold. You want to grab a number? Let's take a break. Don't go away. Got plans for midnight? Bring your VOCM along with the best soundtrack for every night, anywhere. The VOCM All Night Show. Midnight on your VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Let's go. Line number one. Say good morning to the president of Inclusion Canada, Newfoundland and Labrador chapter. That's Dennis Gill. Good morning, Dennis. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you this morning? I'm great today. Thanks. How about you? Oh, pretty good. Bye. Pretty good out here in Kelly's Island. Lovely morning between the fall and, uh, yeah, it's wonderful, actually. So this morning, I just wanted to make uh, your listeners aware, a lot of them probably already know, but probably a lot of them do not, that uh, Inclusion Canada, Newfoundland and Labrador, which used to be until September of last year, the Newfoundland and Labrador Association for Community Living, and uh, our organization advocates with and on behalf of approximately 15,000 people in the province who have intellectual disabilities and their families. So a week from today, at 1, 1 p.m., we're having uh, a conference at the Quality uh, Hotel in Gander, and it's going to run from uh, next Wednesday at 1 p.m. until Friday at 12 noon. And uh, just wanted to put the word out there, and we still have a number of uh, registration spots open. Not a lot, but we do have some, and if anybody is interested, uh, they could certainly contact our association, and uh, we'd give them the particulars on that. This might seem like a bit of a silly question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. When we talk about inclusion in education, we have a vague idea what that means. When we talk about inclusion in the community, we have an even vaguer idea what that means. So what does inclusion actually mean? Because it might mean something for youth, something different for young adults, older adults, seniors. So what are we, what are we actually talking about, Dennis? How'd that happen all of a sudden? Yeah, we'll see if we get Mr. Gill back. The, the call just dropped, and it's on his end. I didn't touch anything. Because isn't that the rub sometimes? Inclusion sounds about right, but it just takes many different forms, doesn't it? Inclusive education, unfortunately, at this moment in time, it kind of feels like just everyone goes to the same school. Now, there are lots of supports, maybe not enough, maybe in a, not in a timely fashion to make it a truly inclusive education opportunity, an equitable opportunity to learn. And we see these stories, whether it be Human Rights Challenge regarding Carter Churchill or William Sears and not being accommodated by a Memorial University professor with the FN transmitting device because he's hard of hearing. So that's where I think we sometimes, even when we talk about affordable housing, what does it mean? Well, it means different things. And so inclusion, if we're talking about people with intellectual disabilities, that's all I'm getting at with Mr. Gill when we get him back on the line, is exactly what does it mean? What does it look like today? What do we need to do to ensure that inclusion is actually a definition that has teeth, that we know how to apply it, we know where to apply it, we know the role of municipalities and the province and the federal government and individuals. 
and I assume this will even translate into the business community, is to just how inclusion has to work. Think about it. You know, I don't know what the relationship is with the Coalition of Persons with Disabilities, say, for instance. But even if we're not talking about what's morally right, what's societally beneficial, there's a big economic upside to talking about inclusion, how it could work in everyone's best interest. You could be leaving 20% of your potential customers on the outside looking in if you don't have a business model and approach that leads to inclusivity. It's just true. I mean, all you have to do is ask the folks in these umbrella organizations, and they'll tell you quite clearly. Uh, his name is Dennis Gill, right? So let's rejoin, hopefully, on line number two, Dennis Gill, who is indeed the president of the uh, Inclusion Canada, Newfoundland Labrador chapter. Let's see if Dennis is back on, too. Dennis, are you there? I'm back, Patty. Sorry about that. I don't know what happened. Me neither. It just kind of dropped, but we are, we'll re-engage the conversation. So I'll set up the question one more time. Is What does inclusion mean inside your group? Because it means different things to different people. How would you like people to think about it when we talk Inclusion Canada? Well, <clears throat> Inclusion Canada, Newfoundland, Labrador, and by the way, we've been on the go now, or this organization has, since 1956. So it's 67 years old, even though this next week we're celebrating the 65th anniversary conference due to COVID and all of that. We've had to postpone it now three or four times. But we look at inclusion in the most basic form as being a person who's got an intellectual disability being able to live in the home of their own choosing and in the community where they would like to reside. Uh, there's a lot of other spin-off things attached to that, like uh, having the right to decide and uh, you know, the things that go with, like almost any ordinary person's lifestyle that we feel that people, and, and uh, rightly so, that have the right to, uh, uh, same rights as everybody else, actually. Same with education, same with recreation, transportation, you, you can go down the full list, right? And that's why I asked the question. I know it's very broad and possibly a little bit vague, but there's different answers to that question depending on who we're talking to. So what does it look like out there? How inclusive or lack of inclusion do, do we see in general terms, wherever you live? You can just speak to what you see in your own area. And then what do we do to change it? Well, there's, there's a lot of positive, and especially, I'd say, in the last 10, 15, 20 years, I mean, uh, people are much more who have intellectual disabilities are much more accepted into their community or into their church or into a recreation activity. Uh, there's a lot more general acceptance, but actually some of the things that we would like to see uh, put into practice still need a lot of work. So, you know, there's, there's work on where people live. There's a lot of work still to be done in the education system. You know, that's improved uh, tremendously over the years, and uh, that's one of the, uh, the main things that uh, Inclusion Canada and Newfoundland Labrador is focused on is education. And we go back to the 50s when things started, uh, you know, from children not being allowed to go to school up to where we are today. In employment, supported employment has come a long, long ways. Uh, Deinstitutionalization, I mean, there's no – well – there's no particular spot in Newfoundland like it used to be years ago where uh, young men and women were either in the Waterford Hospital or the Children's Home or the uh, Exxon House. And so deinstitutionalization has sort of been uh, – it's pretty well disappeared, but not totally because there's it's crept, the, 
crept into our society in a different manner, and now people could be put in personal care homes or, or whatever. So, yeah, there's a lot of different aspects that we try to move forward that agenda, and it's, it's relatively successful, but like everything else, it's very, very slow. It used to be some of the issues when we talked about intellectual disabilities, we used the most atrocious metrics to diagnose and to say whether or not someone has one. You know, like things like using someone's IQ score. And that's been a big problem inside the world of autism and people who are on the spectrum. How do, what do people, under, what do we understand about intellectual disabilities? Because it can be practical regarding your mobility. I guess it can be uh, spatial or social. So there's different kinds of, uh, different kinds of intellectual disabilities. Give us an example of what they include, because people will say someone with Down syndrome or someone on the spectrum, but it's more complicated than that. Yeah, uh, <laughs> that's a difficult, it's a good question, but it's a fairly difficult one to answer. The, we, we look, people get categorized, unfortunately, in so many different um, areas of life, but like people with intellectual disability, mostly it's difficulty in probably communication, uh, or it could be in uh, social engagement, and and there's a whole range of things where, uh, and I know the IQ thing, like we try to steer away from that, even sure. though it's still it's still out there. Uh, but people who who have uh, cognitive disabilities, and uh, you know, we we try to at least help families or, or young men and women and advocate on their behalf to get change in some of the policies and practices that uh, that are currently in existence. So one last time, uh, actually I have one quick question before we get the details of the event. Are men or women more likely to have an intellectual disability? An, an excellent question and I don't know the answer. Okay, I was just curious. Yeah, I, we now we've never looked at that but it's an interesting question. Uh, I have no idea. No worries, Dennis. Uh, it just popped into my mind. Uh, give the folks the details one more time where your upcoming event will be and how to be involved. Okay, so the 65th anniversary conference, uh, it's in the Equality Inn in Gander, 19th to the 21st of October, which is starting next Wednesday. And uh, we've got still got a few spots for registration open. And by the way, we do have some financial assistance available for delegates. Uh, if they uh, are interested in attending and the contact info, uh, our phone number is 722-0790. That's our office in St. John's and or uh, projects at inclusioncanadanl.ca is our email address. And uh, we've got a really good lineup uh, uh, on the go for the conference. Uh, Lieutenant Governor is going to be at our opening ceremonies, which begin at 7 p.m. next Wednesday evening and uh minister habit is coming in virtually because the house of assembly is in session uh the mayor of gander percy farewell is going to be there inclusion canada president robin acton and our executive vice president krista carr uh we're going to have the unveiling of our new name and logo we got a brand new history exhibit depicting the institutionalization and then the next day we've got the keynote by one of our own actually uh, a young lady who has uh, lived experience in uh, with intellectual disabilities has, has been a member of our association and Empower and People First of Newfoundland and Labrador and People First of Canada. We got 
we're going to talk about registered disability savings plans, uh, supported living and housing, inclusive education, future planning, the right to decide, and uh, then we're having a banquet uh, next uh, Thursday evening. And guest speaker is Robin Acton, the uh, president of Inclusion Canada. We've got a live band for that night to uh, round out that evening. And the next morning, Friday morning, October 21st, uh, from 9 to 11, uh, 11.30, we've got Minister Hagee, who's going to come in and share with us for a while, and some folks from around Newfoundland and Labrador who are going to share their own life experiences. And then we got some prize draws, and that'll pretty well round it out. Appreciate the time supporting, Dennis. Thank you, sir. Thank you so much for your time, Patty. Have a nice day. Same to you. Bye, Dennis. Bye-bye. That's Dennis Gill, the President of Inclusion Canada, Newfoundland Labrador Chapter. Let's take a break. When we come back, we're going to say good morning to the meet director for the Masters World Powerlifting Competition. He's not only the meet director... I believe he's already, already won some hardware for himself. Jeff Bott, right after this. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number four and say good morning to the meat director, M-E-E-T. He's not the resident butcher for the Masters World Powerlifting Competition. That's Jeff Bott. Good morning, Jeff. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Great today. How are you doing? Oh, good, good, good. Can't complain. So, again, I generally start with the very fundamentals on this stuff, but... Describe to the listener, what's the difference between powerlifting and weightlifting? Weightlifting, many people in their minds, I will look to Olympic, uh, Olympic lifting as I refer to. What are the differences? Okay, so in Olympic lifting, two over-the-head lifts, the snatch, snatch and clean and jerk, and in powerlifting, the three lifts combined, it's the squat, bench press, and deadlift. So do you take uh, a total weight score, and that's how you determine the winner? Yes, it's it's an overall winner uh, with uh, with that scenario with, with adding the three lifts, but uh, there's also individual medals for the individual lifts as well. So what the what determines who's in the masters categories? Uh, masters is anywhere from forty and older, uh, and then in ten year increments. So we have forty to forty nine. Uh, 50 to 59, 60 to 69, and above 69. Someone sent me a note, a private message on Twitter. Give me the heads up that this was happening. Also sent me a picture of her training partner or mentor, a 74-year-old woman who had won in her category. Also said there were some 32 countries represented. Give us a give us a uh, an overlook about just how busy and how many people are involved. Uh, well, there's 450 athletes, and we are just about split down the middle with men and women. And uh, there's, uh, of course, when you have uh, people coming in from all over the world, you have coaches and, and, and entourage and families and, and things like that. And, uh, and yeah, there, there, we're, we're between 30 and 35 countries here. We had about 37 in, in the beginning, but a few uh, had trouble with visas and things like that. But uh, it's, it's busy down here. The hotel is, is basically overrun by power. When we know that, of course, if you can qualify for the Olympics, between those that and the World Championships, that would be the pinnacle of the sport. So are the Worlds the absolute pinnacle of powerlifting? Yes, th- this is. Uh, the only only place you can go higher than this is World Games, which is for open competitors and, and open at any age group. And, and uh, that happens every four years like the, like the Olympics. And uh, that would be the pinnacle. But this is definitely the pinnacle for athletes of, of our age, I guess, uh, 40 and older. How did we get to manage to host it here in St. John's? Uh, well, it was a, a process of going through uh, our provincial association to the to the national association. Um, I had a little bit of experience running a few world championships uh, around before, and uh, we put in a bit a number of years ago. This was supposed to happen last year, of course, but COVID uh, uh, slowed it down. They pushed us ahead to, to this year, and uh, yeah, we're happy for it. 
What's the powerlifting scene look like here? Do we have a bunch of people involved and people who are winning goals at the various world levels? Yeah, we, we, we do quite well, uh, and especially in Newfoundland Labrador. We have uh, uh, probably about one-fifth of the team is from Newfoundland Labrador, and uh, uh, I think there's probably four or five Newfoundlanders uh, that have uh, one goal already. Yeah, I think you're one of them, aren't you, Jeff? Uh, I am, yes, yeah. What category yeah, do you I, fall into? I, t- I, took, uh, I took gold in the, the squad and deadlift and overall uh, in my particular group, and I'm in the M2, so 50 to 59, uh, 93 kilo class. Give us an idea how much weight is on the bar and how heavy are you? Uh, so I'm, I'm 205 pounds, roughly. Uh, squat about 560, bench the 330, 340, and deadlift is about 630. How many times can you rep that bench? Uh, no, just one. Only one <laughs> It's crazy stuff. I know some guys, I mean, the late Danny King was into it, Steve Campbell and Keith Dunn and guys who I know uh, play around, or actually that's a terrible way to put it, are involved with the weights, the weightlifting and or powerlifting. Uh, this one might be completely out of left field. Is there two different kinds of powerlifting? Is there such a thing yes, with uh, you have equipment and one you don't or something like that? Yes, it's cla- what we call classic and, and equipped. So classic is the one that I've already competed in. And I am competing Friday in the equipped. And the equipped is with supportive equipment. So there's knee wraps and uh, the suits are uh, a polyester style. So it's a little more supportive equipment. And there's a bench that, that has a polyester. And so it's a little more supportive. So more weight being lifted by the same the same person, I guess. Uh, but it's a whole other skill. It's it's uh, it's it's a it's a different different beast altogether. Is what I what I say. Straight back, no matter what. Okay, yes. so inside Olympic lifting, you know, we'll watch it and see what it takes to do the snatch or the clean and jerk. And I'll, I'll apply that question to weightlifting, Olympic lifting, and powerlifting. We know there's always going to be a combination of skills required, whether it be coordination or technique and or raw strength. If you're prioritizing for a young up-and-comer powerlifter, what are the things they mo- have to focus on the most? Is it technique, world's the world, or is it the brute strength can be, can be taught the proper technique? Uh, well, um, and me myself, I probably had the brute strength and took me a lot of, a lot of years to develop the technique. Uh, leverage is, is, is very important. You can, you walk down here and, and I'm, I'm a tall man <laughs> in, 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 amongst, uh, amongst a lot of the power lifters. Uh, so, and, 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 uh, but I, I say the hard work is really what, what gets you there and, and, uh, you know, dedicating uh, your, your time and, and being in the gym each and every week is, is what really does it in the end. Did you ever diversify to any strongman competitions? Uh, I, I've tried a couple myself uh, back when I lived in Saskatchewan. Uh, uh, I've also tried weightlifting uh, a little bit in, in the Masters group uh, a few years back. Uh, and, yeah, they, they I, I think given time, they're the ones that we could all be probably fairly good at, uh, but, but definitely powerlifting is my sport. Sounds got, uh, sounds great to me. So, what hotel are you in? Can the public attend? Give us some of the details. Uh, so we, we're we're cooling up the classic listing today, and we have a banquet for that tonight. And uh, some people will be off uh, back to, to their homes tomorrow. But we do have the classic or the equipped starting tomorrow. Uh, each day, roughly from nine to seven from now to Saturday, you'll you'll see listing going on down here at the Sheraton, and uh, just walk in and, and come and watch some of the strongest men and women in the world. And, uh, you know, it, it's fun. It gets exciting when you have uh, battles and, and competitions that are close. Uh, and and it, it might not sound like a lot of fun, but it, it can get enjoyable. And, and we have 
you know, announcers and, and officials here from all over the world as well, and uh, and they know how to get the best out of, out of the lifters uh, when, they're, when they're stepping up there to lift the weight. So a banquet tonight, given the athletes involved, how many tractor-trailer fulls of food for the banquet? Uh, it's going to, going to be a lot. <laughs> uh, the, the, we're, we're having the banquet tonight at the, at the Sheraton in the atrium, and uh, I, I think there's going to be a shoulder-to-shoulder down there for sure. No doubt. It might be a bit of strongman, strongwoman competition for the buffet line. Uh, Jeff, congratulations on your gold medal and all the work you've done to bring the Masters World Powerlifting Competition to St. John's, and enjoy the rest of the event. Okay, thank you, Patty. All the best. Okay, bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. It's Jeff Butt. He's director of the competition. That's pretty cool. Just to hear him talk about the amount of weight he's putting up there. <laughs> Unbelievable. All right, let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, boy, oh, boy, we'll be speaking with you. Don't go away. Take a break. Join us weekdays from 1230 to 1 p.m. as we discuss anything and everything that's happening now. It's all on the table during your VOCM lunch break. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number one. Say good morning to the chair of the Hindu temple here in St. John's. That's Aruna Ralhan. Good morning, Aruna. You're on the air. Uh, good morning, Patty. Um, thanks for the opportunity. And first of all, I wanted to say that you host a great show. I always listen to it at least once during the day, driving around. Um, so thank you for that. Um, yeah. I really appreciate it. First off, how did I do with your name? You did very good. Okay, good. Well. <laughs> We're off to a good start. So thanks for the time this morning, and thanks for tuning into the show. What's on your mind? What have we talked about this morning, Aruna? Um, you know, we always talk about a variety of issues um, which impact us all as Newfoundlanders, and one of the issues currently at hand was when Hurricane Fiona hit our province and our neighboring provinces, and so many of our neighbors found themselves in a very difficult situation. So we, as Hindu Temple of St. John's, um, immediately, like second or third day, decided that we wanted to do some significant effort to raise, you know, ten to twelve thousand dollars to donate to Red Cross, and we decided to do that in a bunch of different ways. Of course, our community donated. Um, we, you know, donations we collected at our temple, we put towards that. But in addition to that, we decided to do an Indian food takeout fundraiser because our takeouts from Hindu temple are very popular at regatta time. So we felt that people will only enjoy if we do it one more time again now um, and that uh, all the proceeds we can send to Red Cross towards Fiona Relief. So on October 15th, we are having our Indian food takeout fundraiser from our temple, which is on 26 Penny Lane, um, off Torbay Road, between 4 p.m. to 7 p.m. And that is what's on my mind. I want to reach out to your listeners. Um, even this morning, one of the conversation I heard on, the, on your line was, you know, fact of giving and sharing, how that really does help us all the way around to our mental health and for people to whom we are trying to do this for. Um, so that's what we are doing. Terrific. Did you say it was on the 15th of November? No, October. 15th of October. It's coming Saturday. Okay, I just want to make sure that we're all on the same page. So, yes. I mean, it's great to do what you're doing. It's becoming incredibly popular. I know there's lots of Indian restaurants that popped up in and around St. John's, and when people go to Lakeside for the Royal St. John's Regatta, I would suggest mm -hmm. your booth might be the most popular on the pond. It is. It is. I can proudly say that. <laughs> 
terrific. So what makes you choose this? Because I know that Newfoundlanders of all walks and stripes really did feel hit hard by Fiona, even if you weren't living on the southwest coast. So I me- I would imagine there would be a fair consensus amongst your members at the Hindu temple that this is the next right thing to do. Yes, there was. There was no brainer. The moment we sent the message out, everybody was, yeah, let's do it. So, yeah, so it was no brainer. It's just we actually wanted to do this on October 2nd. But due to some logistics, we couldn't pull it off for October 2nd. So we decided to do it on October 15th because we want to donate the money prior to October 23rd to Red Cross so that, you know, we'll get also the federal government match amount, which will double our effort. So, yeah. And that's a great idea to make sure we take advantage of that offer from the federal government. How does the Hindu temple do all they do with the preparation of these foods and these types of pop-ups, whether it be at the regatta or otherwise? Do you have a staff or is it members of the community that just chip Mm -hmm. in their time and effort? How does it work? Our Hindu temple is totally based on volunteerism, from every Sunday prayer to doing multi-faith symposiums, to going to schools to educate people about a different religion, um, to cooking food for regatta, to cooking food for our festivals, to running our building, painting our building. It's all totally volunteerism. We just come together and just, you know, just do it, basically. Give me a sense of what it looks like a presentation in a school. Because, like, for instance, what do you present and what are some of the most common questions you get? Um, You know... It's, it's very, I guess I personally, and also as Hindu temple, you know, lately there have been so many conversations about racism and people not knowing, you know, who our fellow neighbors are. Um, so when we go to, so this is why we make that effort. Even actually coming up in November, we have students from St. Bonaventure College visiting our temple. So I think it just, when they come to the temple, more than the religion, it is just the awareness that, People pray, there's one God. We all just pray in just slightly different way. We all believe in sharing, giving, standing next to our neighbor, holding a hand for somebody who has fallen. So people are no different. So I think when students come, they they realize that a fellow student in their class or in their school is really no different. The color may be different. So when they come to temple, they want to know basically how we pray, why we pray, how we say hello, what are some of our festivals? How do we celebrate them? So things of that nature, depending upon the student's age. We have had very young students, like grade two to grade eight. Um, so yeah, so it kind of depends upon the age of the student. We have had university students who do Hinduism course, have participated in our festivals, and have come to learn about Hinduism. So it just depends which, which grade level you know, students they are. Uh, Aruna, are you a first-generation Canadian? Um, I I arrived here 35 years ago mm-hmm. in 1987. Um, yeah, so I guess I am a first-generation Canadian. <laughs> Terrific. So I'm sure people will be quick to take advantage of the offering that you have coming up on October the 15th. I believe you said it's from 4 to 7, right? Yes, and uh, can I just give some contact information? Absolutely. Because so people can order by calling myself. Uh, my cell phone number is 709-325-3751. Or they can go on the Facebook and just search Hindu Temple 
and under our posts, uh, our current poster around Fiona Relief is there, which provides all the details about the cost of the food, what's on the menu, etc. Or they can also, you know, um, go on the Hindu Temple's website. They will also find the similar information. We are really hoping to raise about $10,000. I know Newfoundlanders, um, and I count myself as a Newfoundlander if I listen to open line pretty much every day. <laughs> Absolutely. That's what my colleagues at my work used to say to me. Oh, my God, you listen to open line, so you have become a Newfoundlander. So anyways, uh, I'm just, just telling you what has gone on in the past. So, so I guess, um, yeah, so I, I know that people uh, enjoy our food. And they know that it's prepared with lots of love and effort. Because it's not for personal profit, it is for giving. So we hope we'll get the support from people and we'll hit our target of raising and donating $10,000 to Red Cross. Which will become $20,000. Aruna, yeah, really yes, appreciate your time. It. Good luck with the event. Stay in touch. And thank you so much, Patty. Pleasure. Okay. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That's Aruna Ralhan. She's the chair of the Hindu Temple here in St. John's. Let's go to line number two. Anthony, you're on the air. Yeah, Patty, you had a lady on there yesterday morning describing her mother where she was sick and in the hospital and how she got out and she's after passing. Uh, I'm in a similar situation with my mom, right? And I like to talk to this lady if it's all possible. I was talking to Dave. Dave didn't have a phone number. So I guess what he's hoping that uh, she's hearing me now reach out, right? And uh, I would like for her to get in contact with me if it's all possible just to have a chat with her. So, uh, my just one second, though, just so I make sure that I can kind of recall what we're talking about here. So, was this lady, was it Rhonda and her mother was misdiagnosed? They thought it was maybe repeated urinary tract infections. That call? That's that call, yeah. Okay, because so, yeah. a lot of these calls kind of sometimes blend together because we hear so many of these difficult stories regarding health care. Okay, so if yeah, Rhonda's sure. listening, she actually uh, sent me a message earlier so I can tell her that you are looking to speak with her, if that's helpful. It would be helpful. It would be very helpful, yeah. Like I said, my mom is in hospital now. and she's got, a matter of fact, when she was talking to you online, she was basically talking to my mom. Same, same situation, right? Only my mom is alive now fighting for her life in a hospital, right? And what's your mother fighting or battling? Uh, well, what, right now she got bacteria in the blood, right? she got two counts of it. Uh, Deep right. was a urine tract infection. She's on her home with a urine tract infection. Yesterday morning, they called uh, to my mom's home and told her to send the ambulance right away because she was misdiagnosed, right? So now that she's in, she's in the hospital now, and they're treating her for this blood infection, right? Well, I wish her well as she tries to get through this. I will send a note off to Rhonda for you, Anthony. Do you, uh, do you want me to give? Do you want me uh, to take your number here live on the air? Do you want to put it on hold and give it to Dave? What do you want to do? Well, well Dave already got the number there. So okay, yeah. so this is the contact number you want to use. Okay, I'll pass it along to her on your yeah. behalf. I appreciate it very much, Patty. No problem. And thank you very much. Say hello to your you mother. And you had a great program going there. It was very informative. And only for that program, I wouldn't have heard this message, right? Or I wouldn't probably get a message from this lady, right? But uh, like I said, when she was describing her situation, she was describing my situation also. I'll pass along the contact. And, uh, Anthony, I wish you and your mother well. Thanks for the time this morning.
Okay, and thank you too. Pleasure. Bye Take bye. Care. Bye bye. All right, so we'll get that off to her. Uh, Dave, can you send me that in a text? I should have written it down when I saw it on the screen. Uh, let's take a break. Don't go away. Welcome back. Uh, let's go to line number three. Wayne, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Morning to you. Good morning, sir. I'm, uh, I was listening to your radio there, or your show there, a couple of mornings ago. <laughs> Just one fellow come on. He said, when all these bills are paid, he's on social services. I'm on the same. I can top him. He's only getting fifty-one dollars or something like that. Yeah, I think it was ninety-one. Yeah, ninety-one. I'm getting seven dollars. And army bills are paid. I'm living on seven dollars every two weeks. Do bills include groceries? Just curious. No. That seven dollars is for groceries, clothing, what have you, toothpaste, dental wear, and that's what I'm living on. But anyway, that's not my story. You had a fellow on there this morning talking about Mrs. in this house. That uh, her husband died. He got sick. He died. A uh, month after that, his father, her father died. A month after that, her mother died. Now she's living in this house. He wants to tear the house down, get rid of the house. She's behind on her rent and this and that and the other thing. And she's living there now with no power. But yet again... They brought in another hundred and some odd refugees again last night. Now, are they going to end up like this poor woman, or what way are they going to be looked after? Hard to say. So, uh, like I asked the minister, and like I said this morning, Wayne, is that any time we bring in refugees in a coordinated fashion like this, we have to be prepared for access to health care, somewhere to live, not relying on long-term lodgings in a hotel. These are questions right. I asked directly of the minister. And so they're they're important ones to ask, or to ask, and hopefully get answers. When when let me put the put it to you like this as well. So as much as this is immigration, for me it's also a humanitarian crisis because we've got people running for their very lives. So we're just playing oh, a role really? and trying to find them somewhere oh, that they want to live. No, no, no. Yes, understand that side of it too. Yeah. Understand how much. Uh, uh, how long is open line on the go? Oh my God, <laughs> decades. <laughs> Well, I can remember, I'm 62 year old, and I, I can remember Dad used to go to bed with the radio on. Yeah. And all Baz used to be screaming his brains. <laughs> the rockets he used to have with some fellows was unbelievable, man. <laughs> and I can remember ever, ever since I was a small boy listening to that show. Well, I think tune in. So you're all, and, and it's a very informal program, right? But there's something wrong there. Like, uh, that poor woman is, you know, I, I know, because I'm on social services too. I'm retired. I'm in all kinds of health issues, everything wrong with me. And uh, it's job living I'm telling you, there's $500 now coming. There's like <laughs> half a lottery to me. Yeah, I, look, I, I say this all the time. I have no idea how people make ends meet on some of these numbers I hear. I no okay. earthly idea. Yeah. It's a struggle, and I think I said the exact same thing to the caller who talked about his $91, is that just the way the system is created is obviously not working. You know, yeah. it's just not. If someone yeah. after bills, and to cover everything else under the sun regarding clothing and food and toiletries, and we're talking about $7, then obviously the math means it can't happen. It can't work. It's impossible. So, yeah. 
you know, there's lots of questions always being asked of uh, folks on social assistance, but the program has to work. It just has to. Oh, God, yes. There's all kinds oh, of God, pots of money. Yes. It, it's just disjointed, right? There's so many different oh. places people can turn for a bit of federal support, a bit of provincial support. But oh, if, we had God, a, yes. if we had a good look at it and took every pot of money and how people were deemed eligible for it and then talked about how people ended up on social assistance, we could probably revisit it, reimagine yeah. it, make it work better than it does because it sounds like it's the right thing to do. The social safety net is an important part of being a Canadian, but it's just not really working. Same thing with the, the way we structure healthcare. It sounds great, but it's not really working. No, it's broken, man. Broken big time. Broken big time. Like I heard the Premier... Uh, uh, on the commercial day this morning, come on after you were on there, and then the commercial come on about the Premier and someone else uh, blaming some, uh, who said what, what said who. Uh, uh, knock off this rigmarole. You know, that's childishness. Get down to basics, man. Get down to try to get this bloody province back to half livable anyway. Uh Just so I know what we're talking about, what did you hear the Premier saying about who said what? I'm not, I'm not sure what that meant. Uh, there was a commercial commander, and uh, the premier was on there, and uh, Buddy blamed the premier for saying something about him. And anyway, he came back and said, check your records, right? I didn't say that. Uh, something about, uh, I, I forget now what it was. Oh, it could have been between him and Barry Pett and something about climate change or something, yeah, was it? That's what it was. Yeah, yeah okay. That's what it was. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, yes. that's the kind of stuff that... You know, and again, sometimes I feel like it's a bit of broken record stuff here, but we have just got to knock it off in the different oh, houses, whether it be House of Assembly or the House of Commons. There's we, a lot more important things on the table, but it, you know, who said what? Yeah, well, I, I guess it plays a role because how people yeah. talk and present their ideas is part of it. But let's focus yeah. in on the problem as opposed to the person because we're just kind of, yeah. that's, that's just playing a bit of the political theater that kind of wastes a bit of our time to be honest fair enough if oh, there's going to be the odd pot shot thrown but let's make it sensible let's let's make it mature let's get some stuff done yeah like uh was a top popped my head there about a month ago i was looking at the, the house of assembly there right get a dozen people in like mrs that called in with no lights and no heat and everything else get a dozen of them to walk into that building and sit down and say, okay, this is what I'm going through. This is what I'm going through. This is what I got to live on. Get me in there. I'm living on $7 every two weeks. But he's living on $91 every two weeks. Get a couple of 50 people like that to, 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 to walk in there and open their eyes. Listen there, reality is reality. This place is broken, big time. And needs major, 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 major fixing. Uh... The government, I don't know if I even want to pass a comment, man. We can if you like. It's up to you. No. <laughs> okay. No. There is no government. I, I tell you what, and this is not in an effort to defend or promote anything or anybody, but I'm glad it's not my gig. I'm glad it's not my no. job. Because, boys, oh, boys, I don't even know what we're expecting anymore because the the number of issues in various walks of life, in various industries, in various corners is just monstrous. 
the yeah. uh, the numbers of issues are massive. And trying and to take him on. Is, is Canada wide. Like, it is Canada wide. You're right, Wayne. Canadian province from BC to Newfoundland, man. Come on, the government got to wake up. You know, the, the red light is flashing. How much more do you want? Wayne, I think you make an important point there. It gets lost in the shuffle. We pretend that our problems are unique to us, but they're not. They're just not. We've got a national conversation that's required. Because even if you just like pick anything, healthcare. I read newspapers from just about every province, as much as I can, just to see what's going on elsewhere. We're not alone. We're fighting the same fight. It's exactly. unreal. And in some form, exactly. we're fighting against each other. Yeah. Yeah. We're not war-torn like the other side of the world is. We don't, we don't solve our problems with guns and knives and, and everything else like they do, right? We kind of just suffer it out and let, let, the, let the politicians have their way with us. Uh, well, I don't think anyone has much patience for being just a pawn in a political game. And sometimes it feels that way, and I know why people say that. Uh, Wayne, well, I appreciate your time. I don't mean to cut you off, Paddy, okay. but I'm going to guarantee you something. Uh, you're going to see it here, too, the violence, and, and uh, uh, it's crime is, going to, crime is going to increase tenfold. Yeah, if that's based you on... stop it, sir. If, that, if that's based... Have, hold on a second. If that's based on people's lot in life and the amount of money they have or they don't have, that's vastly different than when we see violence as a result of politics. You can only hope we try to stave that off. And there's been examples where we've been unable to avoid it, and it's happened. And it yeah. is ridiculous, and it's completely unnecessary. And so that, that's why we need some leaders in particular to tone it down a bit. You know, I know oh, you're trying it. to whip up your voting base, but just be realistic as to what that might mean. Because we're just getting carried away here way too often on almost everything. Yeah. Wayne, it's, it's good to have you on the show. I hope you're doing well. Stay in touch. Not a problem, my man. You have a good day, no? You too, pal. Okay, my man. All right, bye-bye. Bye-bye. Yeah, look, I mean, there is going to be a certain level of violence based on a variety of things. Some of it is the criminal element. Some of it is based in drugs and the like. We all know. But there is a tone to politics that has gotten more aggressive. Now, some of it might be just getting caught up in the echo chamber and the toxic dump that is social media sometimes. But it's starting to manifest itself. Uh, different than years past. Look, we've always had civil discontent, right? And protest, and loud at that. But we've got examples where it's been taken to the nth degree. And we can all try to be mindful of our own selves and our own commentary, but some political leaders just have to be aware that words have meanings. So whether you be ostracizing one segment of society or another, and I'm not even going to mention some of the ar arenas where people have been pigeonholed, but it's getting a little bit much. We can always have debates and be uh, in full-on disagreement, full-throated disagreement, but some of that is different than some of the things that we unfortunately have to suffer and listen to. All right, let's take a break for the 11.30 news. When we come back, Rob wants to talk about an important matter. That's access to information. Information is power. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to the top of the board, line number one. Rob, you are on the air. Hi, Patty. Happy Wednesday. Happy Wednesday to you. <laughs> um, I was just calling to touch on your last caller there with regards to uh, the Confederation building and access. Um, when they made that change to the confederation years ago not even all that many it was just before covid 
we we as citizens had access to the Confederation Building. You could go in and watch the House of Assembly. Uh, you had access to, for example, the Tourism Department. Uh, there were another a number of departments that you had access to uh, with counter service uh, that you could go into. I, I, I ran a business at the time where I needed to collect maps and and tour guide information, and you know they and they have all of that there. Uh, and there were some other services that, you know, people could make It's like crown lands. You can walk into crown lands or you can walk into the land title office down on, uh, was that Elizabeth Avenue or, yeah. you know, some of the other ones and it changed. And I, I, I asked, you know, why, why did it change? And I couldn't really get a, a straight answer. And, uh, I started asking some more questions and I sent in a freedom of information act as to why. And the best answer I could get was there was a security directive, but, the security I asked, does the security directive override, um, you know, a public access building, just like a library or another building that we pay tax for? I mean, it's it's our building. Uh, and I couldn't get a clear answer from anyone. So I reached out to an MHA who will remain nameless. And the answer I got was, sure, Rob, you don't want people up dancing and screaming all over your desk. And I said, but that's that's an administrator's office. I mean, you can secure a floor, but, you know, your first two floors are are designed for public access. Why? you know, have a, have a key fob to use the elevator or, and he said, Oh no, they'll still get in. <laughs> so I really don't know why. I mean, I understand why I think it's just basic fear is to keep the public away from the, the decision makers of the province. Uh, and, you know, Hey, I get it, but you know, I mean, it's a public building. If they're going to do it for one, they have to do it to all, in my opinion, you know, they need to lock down the DMV. They need to lock down crown lands. They need to lock down all the other, provincial uh, service buildings that the public has access to if that is going to be their decision, not just, you know, where we go to actually view our elected officials, make decisions in real time, uh, you know, in order to view them. I mean, I just think it's ridiculous. Just a couple of things. So I know when they moved the Colonial Building, it was a invitation only, first come, first serve for the public gallery. But aren't people able to go to the House of Assembly now? You have to go. So you are, but you have oh. to identify yourself. Yeah. You have to be screened. You have to you have to be searched. Um, there is a, there is a laundry list of stuff. Now I've I've thought about reaching out to uh, Michael Harvey and asking him about that with regards to privacy, um, because you know I don't know if it's required anywhere else. I know it's not on a municipal level, um, and I, I I I can't speak federally. Uh, but provincially, I've I've lived in other provinces, and that is not a requirement to attend a public session of uh, of, of a meeting. Well, like in Ottawa, for instance, at the House of Commons, it is. I've never been to another provincial legislature, I don't think. Uh, but yeah. I tell you what, some of this is, from where I sit, some of this is philosophical. Because it's not only about security, and that may play a role. I mean, we've had some threats that have been investigated, and there's been a couple of bomb threats and that kind of stuff, so I get it. But a lot of this, and in, as it pertains to counter-service, is the move has already begun, it's ongoing, and it's not yet complete, but it's the move to digitizing government. I mean, that's yeah. part of this here, right? I mean, the, the ability to go in, reach out, and speak to someone. I was going to say to touch someone, but that kind of speaks to the security issue. <laughs> to, to be able to look someone in the eye and make your request. Before long, that won't be available for the most part. So I think there's some philosophy behind the things that you're facing as well. Yeah, I get that. And I, and I just, you know, I just wanted to point it out that, 
there has been a change. I, I, I personally don't agree with it. I mean, I think that we're still paying the employees to sit there at the counter. I mean, yes, they do answer the occasional phone call, but that portion of their job is now redundant as there's no longer a requirement. And also another key piece was there's a cafeteria, I think, in the West Block, and a lot of students used to go there because the food was cheaper uh, than over to Mon. And when they changed the security, that got locked down and they don't have access to it anymore. Um, but quickly, just one other thing. We talked a couple of weeks ago about the MMSB and the three cents on the bottles and yep. and all yep. the funny. Did you ever get a chance to talk to them? Because, I mean, every time I listen to your program, you know, everybody's hurting in Newfoundland. And, look, three cents is three cents. You know, it's, 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 it's a big number. And you're looking at, you know, $20 million in funding and all the money that they've got sitting in accounts everywhere. And I just – people need to take a closer look at that that that, that portion of it. I sent along something for more information. I'm pretty sure I haven't heard back, but that's just another spur to remind me to do some additional follow-up. I've got that many things on my oh, list. I can imagine. That I can imagine. The follow-up yeah. list is as long as anyone can possibly imagine, but now that can be bumped back up so I can follow up again because I'd like to get that piece of information as well, Rob. Well, and, and if anybody is listening, all the people that call in and all the people that – have requests and concerns, you know, just to break it down, the MMSB is who manages the recycling in Newfoundland and Labrador. In other provinces in Canada, you get back every penny that you pay as a deposit on your bottle, except in Newfoundland. The MMSB recoups three cents of every bottle that you recycle. So if you have a problem or your cash flow is light, call your MHA, call the people of power and ask them about the MMSB because they need to be called to task on why that three cents is not being given back to the people of the province and why they have such a high budget and why they have so much money sitting in the bank when there's people all around this province struggling day to day with basic needs and necessities. So, Patty, look, I know that you're doing everything you can, and in your position, I think that you do a stellar job. I would never complain. But this really comes down to the people and the government of this province listening to the people's needs and understanding that there may be a solution that they just need to look a little closer at. Yeah, I didn't take it as a complaint. I took it as a health, uh, friendly reminder, which uh, that's the way I choose to hear things like that, even if they are <laughs> even if they are complaints. <laughs> no, you won't hear a complaint from me, my buddy. I appreciate the time, and thanks again for your, your call this morning, Rob. Okay, take care. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Yeah, I got to do that follow-up. Three cents doesn't sound like a lot, but it is when every cent counts. Will I take Brandon here quick before the break? Yes, let's go. Line number three, Brandon, you're on the air. Oh, Patty, uh, it's nice to talk to you. I hope you've been having a good morning. So far, so good. Thank you. Um, I just had a quick uh, – I kind of wanted to reply to another caller that you had earlier. He he mentioned his 911 call and how uh, the police – there was no response. Now, I, I've been fiercely critical of the police on your show in the past once I called about uh, their lackluster response to the shooting at an apartment building in Center City. I remember and, that um, call. Yeah, and it also has something to do with the access to information policy, which uh, I know the Freedom of Information Act was mentioned on your last call as well. And if I'm not mistaken, in that policy, transcripts of 911 calls are covered by the access to information. So if you call them and you want the transcript of your 911 call, they should be able to give you the exchange that you had with the 911 operator. I didn't know that to be true, to be honest. That's the first I heard of it. I do believe 911 calls, at least um, I haven't read it for the Newfoundlands or for the Canadian Freedom of Information Act, but uh, I figure 911 calls, that would be definitely should be covered in that if it's not. But I wanted to uh, Employer your caller earlier who called 911 to see if he could get a transcript for his 911 call because um, during that incident at the apartment building in the center city, a couple of residents called 911 and they wanted to know if there was any transcript of their call. So they all uh, asked the 
uh, used the act uh, to try to get their transcripts, but they were told that there was no transcripts for their calls in particular. Now, once again, I, I can't say 100% of this is in the policy, but I really think if it's not, it certainly should be. Um, but the fact that they could not have any of the transcripts for these calls makes me wonder, you know, are they even being forwarded to the RCMP? And like I said, I've been fiercely critical of the police in the past, but um, I really I really have lost a lot of faith in our uh, social systems, similar to our caller earlier, who said when you call 911, you know, you have an expectation that somebody will respond. But it really seems that in this day and age that that response is dwindling. Um, you know, I mean, it went from six to eight hours for waiting for us at that apartment building. This poor man was waiting 24 hours, uh, he mentioned. So, mm-hmm. I, I mean, for me, it, regardless of people's critique of law enforcement, inside of 911, I don't know whether or not that is uh, covered in the or under the act. But I do know that there could be all kinds of legitimate privacy concerns inside of a 911 transcript. But, you know, it's easy enough for me to just send a quick email off to Michael Harvey, the Information and Privacy Commissioner, just for the broad strokes about 911 transcripts and access to them. I don't know. Uh, if I knew the answer, I'd be happy to offer it right here. But I can figure that one out. That's an easy one. That's a quick email. Yeah, well, thank you very much. You know, I'm glad that uh, you can get in touch with Mr. Harvey. And I hope he can answer my questions about whether those transcripts are um, covered under the Act. Um, but, you know, it just seems that the length of time people have been waiting for responses, whether they're allowed to get a transcript or not, it's suspicious. It's, it's, you know, I get that there are a lot of violences happening across the city, but in any one night, you know, I, I know a lot of police officers are on duty. So um, for no response to, to, you know, violent crime for hours and hours, it, I, I sympathize with your caller who said he had been you know, losing some faith in some of our social systems. Yeah, and of course, Mr. Harvey wouldn't be able to talk about response time for law enforcement, but he can tell me whether or not those transcripts are covered by the Act, which I can do that much. The other issue with response times and stuff, whether that be at the ministerial level or directly with, say, Chief Roach, for instance, that's a better place for me to ask that question because I can actually get an answer because I'm sure Mr. Harvey has no authority or jurisdiction into that arena. But I'll get the fundamentals from Mr. Harvey. You stay tuned to the show. As soon as I get him, I'll be happy to talk about it. Thanks again, Patty. I hope you guys have a nice day. You too, man. All the best. All right. Bye-bye. Uh, last break of the morning. When we come back, the new program being launched by the folks at Trades NL for career development for the members. We'll find out more about it when we come back and say good morning to the executive director at Trades NL. That's Darren King. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Well, the good folks at Trades NL have launched a new program to aid their members in career development. We'll find out more about it on line five when we say good morning to the executive director, Darren King. Good morning, Darren. You're on the air. Hey, Patty. Good morning. How are you doing? Great today. Thanks. How about you? I'm doing well. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity to have a chat. When I read the headline, of course, and people who just read the headlines are nuisances, but when I just read the headline, I'm thinking career development, I would imagine, would be an ongoing opportunity for anybody working in the trades, whether it be from apprentice to journeyman and or learning additional skills. Where were the shortcomings for the need for this new program? Well, first of all, uh, you're absolutely right. So career development is <clears throat> excuse me, is a priority for all of our members, and it is ongoing. Um, primarily, career development focuses on advancing their, uh, or sorry, developing their skills in their particular trades. Um, so if you come in as an apprentice, you, your career development proceeds to help you get through to journey person, 
and red seal status and any further upgrading or special te- techniques in your trade. Uh, what this is focused on is uh, mem- uh, based on member feedback over the last couple of years, uh, we reached out to, to try and determine what will be beneficial to you in your personal and professional lives to help you develop your career. So. Um, we put together these courses in partnership with the provincial government, uh, and really there's two focuses. One is on personal development, so we're talking about being able to use uh, microcomputers, personal finance, and the use of iPhones and the, the relatively new technology that comes with some of those. On the work side, we have three courses, one focused on leadership development, uh, career development, and diversity and inclusion. Uh, so none of those topics necessarily would be covered in their day-to-day development of their core skills for their particular trade. So this is really to, be, to help them develop uh, personally, uh, you know, and, and, and to help them learn skills that might help them better cope in their personal lives. And as I said, with technology, uh, on the work side, you know, what we're really hoping to do is to work with individuals, for example, who want to move beyond their trade to become shop stewards and leaders on site. Uh, who want to move beyond that to become four persons and general four persons. So the, the leadership course will talk to them and, and teach them about the kind of skill sets you need and the kind of knowledge you need to do those jobs. Uh, the career development course will focus more particularly on, on how they can achieve some of those objectives by plotting out a career plan and, and help navigate the system. And the third one, which is uh, one of the most important courses, I think, is, is really around diversity and inclusion in the workplace. And we've done a, a lot of work, Patty, on that over the last uh, 10 to 15 years. And, and many of our, our seasoned members would have done training on that and, and are used to it. Uh, but, you know, one of the things that doesn't necessarily get taught when you're in the classroom and you're doing your, your entry-level training is what it's like to work in a diverse environment with you know, immigrants and new Canadians and uh, people of diverse backgrounds and indigenous backgrounds and so on. So that course is uh, really focused on on helping make sure, A, people understand the kind of diverse environments you work in, and B, particularly in the construction sector, what you need to be mindful of and what, what would be considered appropriate and inappropriate behaviors. So that, that's really a kind of a nutshell of, of where they came from and what the courses are all about. I would add women to that list because at one point it was a male-dominated field. No one can deny it. So, you know, when the first step was towards possibly more and more women, and there's a standalone office working on women in the trades, which would be part of that diversity, I assume. Uh, before we talk about tech advancements, because everything's changing so quickly, it's hard to keep up. The soft skills. You know, I have worked a couple of times in my lifetime in these types of uh, big job settings, work sites. And, you know, people think of the trade sometimes as, you know, it's, it's muscle memory. It's robotic. I know how to do my job. I'm an electrician. Every job is very similar. But if the left hand and the right hand and the different trades don't know what the other group are doing and understanding the so-called concept of teamwork, soft skills become as important sometimes as your technical skills. Uh, well, I agree 100%. Um, to your point on, on the uh, inclusion of women, yeah, that, that's a, I, I didn't say that one, but that one, it was a, sometimes I forget to say it because it's a given for us, but that is a part of the diversity and inclusion uh, focus. And, uh, you know, as you probably know, at one point we were leading the country in, in the percentage of women in the skilled trades, and we continue to work with uh, the Office to Advance Women's Apprentices in WRDC to attract women to the trade. So that is certainly a big part of that course. But you're absolutely right that, you know, the workplace is changing and, and the soft skills are becoming increasingly important. And, you know, one of the things that uh, we've been trying to do consistently over the last number of years is have our membership more engaged in what's actually happening on site, not just to show up, do the toolbox talk, and then go in and do whatever it is that's required of them. But, you know, we have a lot of experience on doing projects and uh, a lot that, that can be 
contributed to other leaders on the site. So the soft, soft skills are important, learning how to work with other trades and projects, learning how to work with management, and learning how to help management understand that, that sometimes when they're coming forward with directions, we, ha- we actually have information that can assist them in making it better. So the soft skills, you're right, they're, they're just as important these days as the technical skills. Where do you see the next big opportunities? Because there's lots of things being floated. Some are conceptual at this point, like World Energy, GH2. We don't know exactly what's involved for trades opportunities there. But like, for instance, in the mining sector, I think we talked after your visit to Labrador for the mining conference. Where are you looking for the next big opportunities for your members? Well, you know, we're, we're looking in a variety of places, and I'm, I'm likely going to reach out to you in the next day or two to talk a bit about some of that uh, as a sort of a standalone topic. But in generally, we're, we're chasing down, obviously, the wind, hydrogen stuff, and we have a lot of proponents t- uh, talking to us now about uh, you know what kind of a labor framework we could enter into and and i think they're doing that as part of of making sure when they go to government with applications for an environmental assessment and project review that they can say that they've engaged with labor uh, to try and support their project uh, mining i talked to you a bit about last week i mean mining is still and will continue to be one of our core areas of focus with ioc and the wabush mines and uh, the three or four other major projects that are in the works for labrador uh, uh, we also have marathon gold here on the island um, so there, there's a tremendous amount of potential in the mining. And, of course, you know, the one that's in front of everybody's mind right now is the uh, Beta Nor project with Ecuador uh, and where that's headed and, and what, that, what that's going to look like. Um, and I, that's one that I'll probably give you a call in a day or so to talk about as a standalone issue. But so, we, you know, we've got tentacles out in a lot of places. Um, you know, as I was saying to our team this morning, if you take the wind and hydrogen, I mean, there's, I think, 25 or 30 proponents that put it in uh, requests for land and expressions of interest. You know, if if one or two of those projects take off, Patty, they're all projecting anywhere from 2,500 to 4,500 construction jobs, and in the vicinity of 500 to 1,000, depending on who you talk to, 500 to 1,000 ongoing jobs year long to operate the processing facilities once they're up and running. So, you know, it's not only our members that have benefit. If if, if we go to work on these projects, uh, the, the spin-off benefits for the communities that these projects will happen in and around would just be tremendous. Uh, that the, the ratio of spin-offs generally is seven to one for every direct construction job. There's seven spin-off jobs created. Um, so there, you know, there's a, there's a lot of talk going on. A lot of communities we're meeting with and sharing information and giving our experiences. But uh, I, I can honestly say I'm pretty excited about the future right now. It, you know, 12 months ago when you and I chatted, I think it was pretty doom and gloom and there wasn't much happening. But uh, today, there's a lot of opportunities ahead of us. We had the White Rose and Argentia about to restart uh, in some big way in, in late January, I suspect. Uh, so there's a lot of opportunities, and we're chasing them all. And as I said, you know, we put a lot of irons in the fire, and we're just hopeful that if a percentage of it even comes to fruition, we'll be pretty happy. Appreciate the time. Look forward to the next chat. Thanks, Patty. All the best. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. Sarah King, ED at Trades NL. All right, we're out of time. Good show today. Big thanks to everyone who supports the program, all of you listeners, callers, emailers, tweeters. You're all right. We'll pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.